You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 414. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG Headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 28th of February, 2020. In today's episode, a homemade rocket crashes, killing Mad Mike Hughes. An airline passenger wears a plastic suit to avoid the coronavirus. More news, your feedback, and in today's plane tales, Goose is dead. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 414 is ready for pushback. Hello, welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. I am Captain Jeff, captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier here in the United States of America. And it's an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news and answer your feedback. And joining me to help with all that is from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London, it's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. I, oh, Bless you. Know, you. I'm really not feeling very well. Oh, you know Getting what? Getting all hot and flushed. And you kind of look like you have. You might have a touch of the kung fu flu. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been drinking too much Corona. That's the problem. Ah, that that particular version of the virus. I see. Anyway, but, really looking yeah. forward to another lovely show. I am too. There's not very many of us here. No, just the two of us uh, for now. Steph's going to join us later. Dana couldn't make okay. it. And our producer director is in the uh, in the wings, making sure that we're doing everything correctly. So hopefully we're going to do all right today. And let's get right on into this. Stand by for news. From up in Canada, from the uh, cbc.ca website, a Harbor Air float plane was damaged when a person attempted to steal a Sea Air plane and then crashed into two Harbor Air planes at the Harbor Flight Center seaplane terminal in Vancouver early Friday morning last week. On a bright February morning on Vancouver seawall, several people stood gawking at the float plane terminal in the harbor below wondering why a plane in the water was docked in the wrong spot and missing a wing. The right wing of the Sea Air float plane had been sheared off at the base. The de Havilland Beaver 
was floating backwards at another company's dock, its severed wing nowhere to be seen. I'm wondering where the wing went. It prob- it's probably at the bottom or somewhere, said Bob McKnight, who made a special trip to the seawall after seeing photos online of the hamstrung plane. And he said, it's not often that you see a wingless beaver. Nice title. Show you messed title. <laughs> Wait a minute, you just messed it up for me. <laughs> there goes my whole joke. Oh, okay, on, here we go. Guy. Try again. It's not. What does he say? It's not. It's not often. Here we go. It's not often you see a wingless beaver. Nice beaver. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Bam. Anyway. Oh dear, I didn't know beavers flew. Anyway, so <laughs> this one did. For, well, beavers. actually, no. It actually never got airborne. I don't believe. I think they just uh, taxied it into some other, some other seaplanes at the. Uh, at the harbor. I saw the pictures. Did a lot of damage. Yeah. I mean, was this guy seriously trying to uh, steal it, or was he just uh, taking it for a, a, a crash ride, a joy ride? Was he just I don't know if they know for sure. Um, Liz and I were talking about this yesterday, and she looked for an update on, you know, what, what the deal was regarding this, and uh, they don't seem to know yet. I guess the investigation is still in progress. I don't know. No, very strange. Just, I mean, it's just we've had a a few of these. I'm just wondering whether it's a copycat. Could be like the the one up in Seattle, where the guy took a ATR. What was it? An ATR forty two or seventy two or something like that? Or was well, it? Well, he uh, actually got out. He, he was got an engineer, yeah. wasn't he? Um, I think he and was. Then just, they, we had that teenager um, crash one and uh, mm-hmm. um, taxi one around and crashed yeah. it. Seems uh, to be a thing. King Air. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't know. Don't know what's going on, but uh, I'm sure that uh, Liz will update us when we have something um, from the uh, Canadian news agencies regarding this uh, thing. Anyway. Well, I must admit, I've always wondered why airplanes aren't harder to start. Yeah. Why there isn't a key. And I only make a joke about it every now and again, you know, about having the master key and mm-hmm. the captain carries a special key ring on him. Uh, but quite honestly, uh, the only airplanes that normally need a key to get going are the, the least expensive. Mm-hmm. As they go up in price, it becomes simpler and simpler to steal one. You know, I think that um, per- perhaps part of the problem now is the, with the uh, flight simulation systems on pcs like um what microsoft's um what is it called um flight sim flight sim and uh, uh x plane and yep. a couple others out there they are so darn realistic and the oh, manuals yeah, are absolutely. available out there for people to figure out how to how to start up uh, jet engines and turboprops and that kind of thing i'm wondering if that's maybe the reason why we're seeing more of this kind of thing now whereas be- well it certainly the enables them it enables them to do it and but the aircraft manufacturers haven't really um you know addressed it in any form or manner so right. they just rely on airport security to keep the wrong people out of the cockpits mm-hmm. uh, and that's obviously um not infallible that is true yeah true it's true that's true <laughs> moving on to b bam now we've talked about this guy mad mike hughes um truly mad um he is the dude that uh made his own rocket steam powered rocket yeah i'm still trying to work out how you 
power a rocket with steam. I guess you just build up enough pressure and let it go woof. I guess. I don't know. It doesn't look like it's big enough to have a boiler on board, so it must like preload the steam into a yeah, tank under and huge then pressure. Climbs in it and then uh, and lets it go. Well, the he has finally um, left this life on Earth uh, because um, let's see when when was this exactly? Was it last week? I'm not sure. Uh, he, uh, a U.S. daredevil pilot has been killed during an attempted launch of a homemade rocket in the California desert. Mad Mike Hughes, 64, crash-landed his steam-powered rocket shortly after takeoff near Barstow, California, on Saturday. Oh, last Saturday. A video on social media shows a rocket being fired into the sky before plummeting to the ground nearby. And, uh, yeah, you can watch the video if you want to see this, uh, uh, strange person, uh, attempt rocket flight now the thing that's really odd to me he kind of allied himself with the um, group of folks who uh, claim that the earth is flat yes if, if you're just now hearing this piece of information ladies and gentlemen the earth is not flat it's round it's spherical anyway um i'm thinking so like one of the i think first flights that he did got up to like 1800 feet or something like that and i'm thinking why doesn't he just rent a um Cessna 152 or a Piper or something and go up and you get up, get up to what, 10, 12,000 feet in those darn things. Oh, much yeah, higher absolutely. than his rocket. <laughs> it's rocket. Yeah. But they, they, you really need to get, you know, up above 35,000 feet to actually prove to yourself that the earth's horizon is curved. True. And even then there are a lot of people say, well, we said it was flat. We didn't say it wasn't a disc. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you uh, know, you could be looking at the edge of the disc. Uh -huh. So there's an awful lot of, uh, you know, people out there will still say, well, you haven't proved a thing. No, I'm sure he did that really just to gain publicity because it's mm -hmm. a controversial thing to say and people more likely to put it in the newspapers. Uh, they can't have been cheap building uh, his rockets. They certainly look reasonably well constructed. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, yeah, and I think it's great that he was an amateur. But the fact that he was launching himself and not just launching the rockets for fun uh, just – Perhaps smacks of a little bit too much enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. I agree. I mean, like one of this one of these um, paragraphs here. With the help of his partner Waldo Stakes, Hughes was trying to reach an altitude of five thousand feet, one thousand five hundred and twenty-five meters, while riding a steam-powered rocket. But I mean, it just as you said, you gotta you gotta be up way up there to actually start seeing the uh, the curvature of the Earth and why was he bothering with this thing that's only taking him a couple thousand feet in the air? That just doesn't make sense. So, I, as you said, it has nothing to do with the the flat Earth, spherical Earth kind of kind of thing. It's it's more just self promotion, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I'm afraid so. And of course, ultimately, you know, a pretty dangerous thing to do. Um, he uh, apparently he had to put a special ladder up to the side to climb into this particular rocket. And uh, as it uh, cleared the gantry, as it were, uh, that ladder uh, struck the box that held his parachute and Oops. deployed it early so that as he was steaming away, the parachute was coming out the back and it got pretty badly damaged. And then, of course, it wasn't able to arrest his descent. That really steams me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, let's see. But, you know, he'll, he will be forever remembered as 
setting the Guinness World Record in 2002 for the longest limousine jump over 31 meters or 103 feet in a Lincoln Town Car stretch limo. Okay, very good. Yeah. Cool. Uh, rest in peace, Mad Mike. We're going to miss you. I mean, there are limousines that are longer than that, aren't there? I admit there probably are. <laughs> anyway, moving on uh, to this one uh, sent in by somebody named Nick. I think that maybe was you. The MH370's mass murder-suicide theory should come as no surprise. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. I, I did, in fact, uh, come across this. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason I brought it to your attention, Jeff, was not so much that someone's come out with another theory, is that um, the theory is exactly that. And it's yet another attempt to, I think, make money from this aircraft's disappearance. And the thing that upsets me is that without any more facts, uh, this author uh, and a few others have um, said that uh, they believe that the captain uh, committed suicide and caused the accident. Mm -hmm. So we've known this information for a while. Uh, so nothing new has come out to uh, support this. It's only a theory. And my belief is when someone has died, um, then uh, you should only really um, implicate them in a crash and say that they caused it when you're really sure of your uh, facts. I, I think it's very bad taste to uh, say that this person did it without any uh, real facts um, because uh, he, he's not there to defend himself anymore. He can't you know, speak from the grave. Uh, and I think it's uh, it's it's very bad when you uh, you know resort to this kind of um, publicity. Uh, and there's, I think there's no other reason than this person is probably trying to um, make some money out of uh, making this claim. So, sell a sell a book or something, maybe. Yeah, I suspect. I yeah. don't know for sure the motivation, but uh, yeah, we could all say, well, it's a possibility. But I think to firmly point the finger and make the claim um, is is not good. No, not at all. I agree with that. Anyway, if you want to read this um, article, we'll put that in the show notes, ITSN. Um, moving right on to the next item in the folder here. Um, the T... <laughs> now, when, when I saw this uh, piece of news, and I can't remember exactly, was it via... Twitter or, or I don't recall, actually, maybe it was a uh, via our feedback email, but, um, this was sent in, uh, by one of our listeners, um, trans States airlines shutting up, but the, the, the title was TSA shutting down. I'm thinking, huh? Hey, yeah, <laughs> wow. Well, you know, it's not the most efficient, um, you know, system that we have here. And I thought, Hmm, that's interesting. Haven't heard about that in the news. Uh, but it turns out that TSA, in this case, is Trans States Airlines, uh, based in St. Louis, I believe. Um, uh, call sign water ski for those of you out there who are pilots and or or enthusiasts listening to liveatc.net and such. And it turns out that uh, they are going to be shutting down by the end of 2020 uh, because of um, shifts in flying and. Uh, uh, contracts for major airlines and stuff like that, uh, just kind of drying up, disappearing, and other regionals kind of taking 
taking their flying from them. So um, they are they're closing the doors, which is uh, which is not a good thing. But at least at, for the for the pilots for the airline, I, I wouldn't imagine that they'd have a difficult time finding employment elsewhere, especially because we're still in the midst of this um, this uh, pilot shortage, if you want to call it that. And uh, of course, you know, now with the latest in the news regarding the coronavirus um, and it's kind of shaking the whole world right now, who knows exactly how that's going to affect the airlines. We're going to have uh, one of our APG community members, uh, Nigel, uh, talking about that in our feedback section today. And so we'll we'll explore that a little bit more. But uh, I don't think in this case it had anything to do with the, the virus in uh, other parts of the world. No, but I, I certainly think that job prospects are, and around the states for a regional, I think, will probably remain strong mm-hmm. and good. But there are places in the world where uh, there's going to be uh, quite a large dip in employ uh, in employment, uh, and it's it's not going to be good for people looking uh, for jobs in the short term. Uh, right, certainly, uh, things will pick up again. But you know, for the next few months, if you're unemployed, it's not ideal. Nope. Not ideal at all. So, well, there you have it. Uh, the other items that we have remaining in our news folder, we're going to cover when Dr. Steph is with us. So that means that we can go ahead and shift right on to our little chit chat section, getting to know us. And I'm pressing the button and nothing is happening. There we go. Shall we sing together? Getting to no, like you, you. <laughs> getting to hope you like us. <laughs> me. Anyway, me, you, everyone. Hey, we like you, even if you don't like us. Um, so this is the part of the show where we kind of get caught up uh, since the last episode last week. And uh, Nick, have you been doing anything interesting with your time since the last show? Nothing at all. Oh, thank yeah. you. So it's going to be very short <laughs> well, come for on. me. Had to be doing uh, something out there. Well, I I was going to do a couple of photo shoots, but they were mm-hmm. both outdoors, and the weather has been absolutely abysmal here, um, with uh, really heavy rain. Uh, yet another name storm is uh, on its way through uh, this weekend. So um, you know, it's just been just been horrible. Yeah. Uh, now I've been keeping myself busy uh, because I do have uh, some things coming up. Okay. Uh, going to get together with uh, a few aviation minded uh, people next week Um, and then it's my wife's birthday we're off to see Hamilton that'll be fun oh nice and then I've got a couple more shoots and then some lectures coming up so I've got plenty going on it's nice to get a couple of uh, plain tales in the bag as it were so I've been working hard at that and um, then it did occur to me that you asked me to do some photo work for the show and I'm trying desperately to remember what that was all about but you'll Mm. have to remind me because uh, maybe like um like like some art for the uh different parts of the show or something was that what? yeah some backgrounds or something that you could insert in so let's have a chat about that because i've got a little bit of spare time and i can certainly have a look at that good and uh all right very good you know um was it um the last episode where we talked about the uh, the drone dome. In fact, it was the title of our last episode. Oh, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Nir from Israel sent in um, some feedback regarding that. He said, as your Israeli listener, I thought a few clarifications are due as a follow-up to APG 413. Raphael, or Raphael, 
is Israel's second or third largest defense company. It was originally a government defense R&D agency, but back in 2002, it was incorporated as a limited company, somewhat similar to a U.S. incorporation, or INC. In the defense space, they have a product line similar or complementary to Raytheon's in the uh, USA. And in fact, they do some they do run some joint programs. As to the Rafael.co.il, the co.il suffix, the il indicates an Israel-based company and is similar to the UK's co.uk or India's co.in. So, uh, some it's of- an interesting uh, website um, address because uh, you would normally expect a company that wanted international business to have .com well, I think or so, yeah. something similar. I wonder rather they're making it country specific because it's something you normally do if you're only looking to trade your company inside say israel in this case yeah just but point the nice thing is though it spells coil so Raphael coil i know it has nothing to do with the company but i just thought i'd throw that out there okay uh some of you may be familiar with is it Raphael or Raphael? Raphael. Uh, i would have to defer to you on that i'm not sure (laughs) i don't know either um, their range of missiles, but in recent years, their Iron Dome system has become well-publicized for successfully intercepting rockets being fired from Gaza at our southern cities. Riding on the uh, Dome's success, they have come up with the Drone Dome name. So that's pretty cool. So uh, it's kind of an off off um, shoot of the Iron Dome system that they have uh, come up with. So he says, I uh, hope this helps a little. Yes, it does. Thank you, Nir. So, um, we've, uh, gotten a little bit more detail regarding that, uh, drone dome system from our Israeli, I guess we don't, we only have one in Israel because it's, he says, as your Israeli listener, uh, Hillel says, uh, Raphael, Raphael. Okay. Thank you. Hillel. Now get back in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't he's even see him. He's texting from the toilet. Again, I guess he is. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Oh, and Nick, 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 Greg. What have I done? Greg Peterson, you know, the Lexington uh, guy, the big ass fan company. Oh yeah. 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 Right. We so he is a little fans. disappointed in you. Uh, yeah. Surely not. He says, I was listening to episode 413 yesterday and Texas and Lashok was talking about a Carillion YT 1300 freighter. The millennium Falcon is a Carillion YT 1300 freighter. Duh. Oh, okay. <laughs> I added the duh. He didn't put that in there. He wasn't quite well, so disrespectful. Yeah. Uh, respectful. I, I, look, I don't want to get a reputation for being the show expert on sci-fi. <laughs> well, like I, look, I, I have an interest, but uh, I'm not an av geek or a sci-fi geek in the same way as I might be considered an av geek. Okay. Well, but you so let are, that one go. You are the most... The closest, oriented, you'll the get. closest you can get to an expert <laughs> on the APG on sci-fi because <laughs> I don't think dear. anybody else has any idea of any of this. Fair stuff. enough. Thank you, Greg, for that. And, uh, oh, and I thought I'd just put out a little, um, public service announcement on, uh, one of the many newsletters and pieces of mail that I received this one from the airline pilots association, which represents the pilots at Acme airlines. Uh, I, I saw this in here, and I thought for those of you out there who are flying uh, as a profession, uh, you might be interested in the fact that they've changed 
the uh, the FAA has uh, changed the uh, airmen's or aeronaut excuse me it used to be the airmen's information manual now the aeronautical information manual uh, section or seven three paragraph seven three eight G. You're beginning to sound like opposing bases. You are. <laughs> yeah. So what that has to do with is well I'll just read this the Federal Aviation Administration has contacted. Uh, the Airline Pilots Association, requesting that pilots provide wake encounter pilot reports, PIREPs, for wake events experienced in the terminal, en route, and oceanic environments. Pilots should use the word PIREP prior to transmitting conditions or a situation to air traffic control. The FAA recently revised the pilot responsibility, and again, in the, uh, in the AIM. The revised AIM guidance encourages pilots to be as descriptive as possible when reporting a wake event. And requests that, uh, how is that spelled? Um, that pilots file wake events through company reporting channels as well as aviation safety reporting systems, uh, ASRS. The description should include any wake impacts, such as changes to your bank angle, altitude changes and deviations, intensity and duration, and uh, if it's an upset, pitch, yaw, or roll attributed to the wake turbulence from another aircraft. So, I mean, I've had this happen several times in my career, but I've never said, hey, I have a pie rep. And uh, so I guess they really want this information um, to be uh, transmitted so that they have a they kind of build up a database of of wake turbulence caused by. Interesting, because uh, yeah. we we filled out uh, turbulence reports as ASRs mm-hmm. uh, for years uh, and. I would normally mention it to the tower mm-hmm. since they're really responsible for separation close to the ground. Um, and that's where a lot of this occurs. So, but I wouldn't normally have mentioned it elsewhere. Most of my encounters actually have occurred not in that environment that you're talking about, but more on the arrival stage or maybe even departure stages. Um, but nowadays we're flying all these uh, GPS-based or um, supplied uh, RNAV um, navigation system. So they're very, very accurate, even in the old coal burning mad dogs. And mm-hmm. we're now flying in the exact same space as every other airplane. So the preceding airplane is like right there. Now, of course, the vertical part of it um, may vary quite a bit, but the actual nav- um, lateral version of our navigation is extremely precise these days. And if you're in a situation where the wind is not very strong or or even not non-existent, um, that's when I end up encountering uh, wake turbulence from the preceding aircraft. And in that case, I'll usually say something like if it's persistent, usually it's just a brief encounter. Maybe the, the wings start rolling a little bit and uh, sometimes it even kicks off the autopilot. Um, I might say to the uh, air traffic controller, um, I'd like to offset like a mile to the left or a half mile to the left or whatever, or right, depending on which way the wind is blowing. And, uh, and they'll usually ask why. And then I'll say, you know, it's cause I'm getting a lot of wake from the guy ahead of us. So, um, but yeah. And then departure sometimes same thing. That's, uh, one of the downsides, I think of this very, very accurate, uh, navigation system world that we live in these days is that we're, we're flying in almost the exact same space as, uh, other airplanes out there where it used to be like yeah. the big sky theory <laughs> you're on vectors and you know you hardly ever encountered wake turbulence 
Yeah. I mean, to, to be truth be known, you only need really need to move uh, 100 feet right. uh, to one side or the other, usually to be completely out into smooth air. But since you can't see it, it's usually quite right. You, you know, you're offset by half a mile or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, yeah, we happen to build in a lot of countries are building in offsets as standard procedures. I know across the Atlantic they are and uh, other air countries insist on it being a requirement uh, and that's more for collision avoidance than just uh, weight turbulence but certainly weight turbulence is a good enough reason uh, to uh, mm-hmm. want to offset that's for sure yeah absolutely okay so we can uh, we kind of uh, took care of a couple of corrections from our listeners and uh, i think now we've we've just eked above the 50 percent um oh, excellent. accuracy oh, very good. ding yeah. ding yeah well, we're, we're done, sir. there we go Good job. Anyway, what are you? What were you up to uh, this week? You've well, been a busy week, haven't you? So I had a vacation period uh, this week, um, and you know they they give us a certain number of weeks of vacation every year. And sometimes in the in the past, I've like lumped all that together. And I mean, I, I remember several years where I just was off basically between Thanksgiving and uh, through the end of, the, of December. Uh, Thanksgiving here in the U.S. Uh, the third week, I think, in Thanksgiving. I mean, uh, in Thanksgiving in November, but, um, I decided this time I'd just kind of break each one of these one week periods into various different places because it helps with, uh, with bidding and, and, uh, my, uh, logging of time during the month and that kind of thing. So I had one here at the end of February for really no reason at all. And I'm glad that I ended up having this time off because as uh, many of you are aware uh, at my church, I end up um, singing in uh, uh, several different musical ensembles. And one of the things I've been asked to do um, in the last couple of months is also uh, when they have a funeral, uh, they, they'd like uh, people to be uh, singing uh, a small ensemble. And uh, my director asked if I would be interested in, in doing that sort of thing. So I'll either sing bass or tenor depending on what, you know, what's needed for the, um, for the, I was going to ask, what's the most popular uh, piece? Uh, um, funeral? well, um, w- let's see. Um, well, amazing grace, probably one of the most popular, mm-hmm. uh, funeral songs we have on angels wings. Um, we, uh, the Psalm that we end up singing a lot is uh, shepherd me. Oh God. Uh, that that sort of thing, and and then yeah. um, Ave Maria. I, I usually do a, a just a wonderful rever- uh, rendition. No, I don't sing it. Uh, there's usually a. I used to do the soprano. In Did you? Ave Maria. Oh, well, yes. yeah. I used to well, sing it as a solo. We we have a couple very very good um, soprano soloists uh, who are in these funeral ensembles, and they are the ones that sing Ave Maria, uh, not me. Um, I just sit back and listen to the wonderful music, but uh, that that sort of thing. Anyway, this week. Um, because I was off, uh, the director asked if, um, I'd be interested in helping out with that. And I said, yeah, in fact, I, I can, whatever you can throw at me, I can do. So I, I think I did two funerals on Monday, one on Tuesday, no, just two on Monday. And then Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, uh, for the, uh, uh Christian church. And, uh, so I sang in a prayer service and two masses on that day. And then, um, a funeral yesterday and a funeral today. So um, it's been a, a busy week of singing for me, but I love singing. So it's not a burden at all for me. And then, uh, and then on Monday, I'm, I don't go out again until Wednesday of next week. So on Monday I'll be uh, singing in two more uh, funerals. So 
A lot wow. of people dying this time of year for some reason. Well, so. it's that you catch a cold and there you go. Yeah, that's true. It's cold and yeah, and usually these are most of the uh, people who have passed are uh, people that are um, quite elderly. So it makes sense that they might be susceptible to colds or whatever and then get pneumonia and then pass away. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Thank you. Liz is reminding me that since the last show, let's see, when did we do the last show? Was it Thursday of last week, I think? Uh, yeah, it was. It was just over a week ago. Yeah. So um, we, um, well, I was, the next day, was starting to work on editing the uh, show number 413. And I thought, huh, I wonder what's going on with the flying at Acme Airlines. And I looked at the uh, trip coverage and noticed that uh, they were giving out some overtime flying. And I went, huh, maybe I'll just throw my name in the hat for something. And I'm going to be really, really persnickety and picky. And I'm going to say, you know, I don't want to do a lot of flying. I just want to. But if you need me, I'm here. And sure enough, they called me up. Actually, we have a system now. Uh, uh, a digital system called um, Arcos, A-R-C-O-S, uh, that um, notifies you when there is some flying available, some overtime flying. And I love this new system because I can look at the uh, the trip. I can see exactly if, you know, one or two or three trips that they're trying to assign or get somebody to fly. And it has all the details of the trip. And you can also look at your status as far as, you know, seniority-wise. You know, are there... Other people that are more senior to me also being considered for this flying, or am I at the top of the list? And in this case, I was at actually, I, I saw this trip and it looked pretty nice. It was one deadhead leg um, Thursday night. No, wait, is that right? Thursday night, Friday night. Uh, one deadhead leg Friday night up to Toronto and then fly the one of the first flights back in the morning back to Atlanta. And I'm thinking, oh, that's a pretty good trip. I would love to have that as an overtime, you know, green slip trip. And then I looked at the coverage and somebody very junior to me ended up getting it, but he was getting it on a regular type of non-overtime basis. And I thought, oh, shoot. Well, good for him. Uh, that's a great trip. Would have been nice to uh, fly that and make a quick visit to uh, Liz, our producer director up there in Toronto. And then, so I started going back to working on uh, the editing, and then all of a sudden, the uh, phone notification from Arcos uh, is there, and I'm notifying me, and I'm looking, and I'm thinking, well, I wonder what, what they're trying to uh, cover. And sure enough, it was that same trip that I thought had been assigned to somebody else. Uh, apparently, that didn't work out for that person. They didn't you know, respond in enough time or something. I don't know. So I ended up flying. Um, just deadheading from here up to Toronto. Um, it wasn't even in the evening. It was like a pretty decent time around five o'clock, I think is when we ended up arriving in uh, Toronto and Liz picked me up from the airport and we drove back in her snowmobile in her. Yes. <laughs> Actually it wasn't bad. I don't think the, uh, it, it had uh, snowed um, the day before or a couple days before or something like that. Um, but they had cleared the roads and that kind of thing. It wasn't bad at all. And, uh, so she picked me up. We went over to her condo. She fixed dinner again, cooked a dinner, a wonderful Italian, uh, chicken Parmesan casserole, which, uh, was just lovely and, uh, drank some wine and where do you get Italian chickens from in Canada? I'm I think that curious. they have them at Costco, right? Liz. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's a special. It's okay. 
an Italian casserole that had chicken American in it. chickens or Canadian <laughs> chickens? I think they are. I, I don't. Okay. I don't know exactly how, but uh, they 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 taste wonderful. They gesticulate wonderful. a lot when they squawk. Is that right? <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> and they poop oregano. <laughs> I think. I don't know. No. Um, Self seasoning then. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm shaking the camera. I'm laughing so hard. I should not touch my stand up desk. Self. Yes. Or I should not touch myself <laughs> during the live show. Anyway, um, so it was great. We uh, had a great time uh, talking about this and that. And oh, yeah, one of the things um, we were talking about is uh, you're fired, Nick. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do it on the show. <laughs> well, that's okay. I could do it some time off. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, no, we had, we had a wonderful time. And then uh, after uh, the very nice dinner, she drove me back to the hotel and got a I, I slept very quickly and uh, got up uh, early the next morning for our our flight back to Atlanta. So I was, from the time I left my house to the time I was back was less than 24 hours. So um, oh, it was a very quick trip and uh, got paid twice as much as I would have been paid if I had just done it under regular rates. So it was great. And it was great. Thank you, Liz. She is a great cook, by the way. That's the second time that she's uh, cooked dinner for me. At her new condo. And uh, so there you have it. That's oh, what I did. Thank you for reminding me, Liz. I, I thought there's just so much going on that I, I sometimes forget about it all. So anyway. Oh, yeah. Uh, big news in um, the, well, I don't know if that's public news or not. So I'll, I'll hold on to that before I announce anything. Um, I'm going to see, well, we're all going to see Dr. Steph here in about, I don't know. 30, 45 minutes, something like that. But I'm going to see her in person um, tomorrow. Tomorrow, we're going to go to the Hops in the Hangar at the Delta oh, Flight Museum. No, you I should have come like over for that. that. I should have, shouldn't I? Yeah. Well, it's not too late. Come on over. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll see uh, Stephen Ivey and some other APG community members have uh, asked um, if any of us were we're going to be hanging out at the uh, Delta Flight Museum for the Hops in the Hangar, which is kind of like a, a lot of breweries, local, mostly local breweries, get together and uh, kind of give samples of their of their wares. And uh, so Steph's coming over for several different things, including a half marathon run. But she'll tell us more about that uh, when she comes on. But uh, yeah, I get to see Steph and Stephen and Andrew and a whole bunch of others that uh, are going to be attending the event. Tomorrow night in Atlanta. Cool. Not sure if there's still tickets available at the door or not. Um, so I, I, I think that uh, I ended up getting my tickets like a month or two ago, or maybe even longer. I don't know. It's been a while. So, yes, uh, main man Micah, I guess, is that is that for public knowledge, public consumption? Uh, we received word that... Stephen, First Officer Stephen Ivey is going to be Captain Stephen Ivey very soon. He ended up getting a, a bid. And, yeah, so congratulations, Stephen, for that. And I'll, uh, I'll drink a beer with you tomorrow in, in honor of that uh, promotion. Absolutely. You need to wet the baby's head. Yeah. So here's a, a typical thing um, that I – kind of a knucklehead kind of thing that I do – so um, I'm a Catholic Christian, and um, I'd mentioned that Ash Wednesday was just, what, two days ago, Wednesday? 
uh, which is the start of the uh, Christian season of Lent. And it's not a requirement, but a lot of people will kind of either take something on or give something up or both. And I uh, decided I was going to try. I, I decided not to be foolish and just give up alcohol completely for the entire season of Lent. I said, I'm going to give up beer. I think I can. I can manage that. There's still wine. Yes, buy and a couple of extra bottles of gin and gin you can give and, up all the beer you want. And wine, and I won't even know the difference. <laughs> and so, and then all of a sudden I saw, I think on Slack or something like, hey, are you going to Hops in the Hangar on Saturday? I went, oh. <laughs> uh, give a, up gin instead. <laughs> yeah, so I thought, okay, I'm going to give myself an exception. Just one exception at, at this at this time for Saturday night. So I will be drinking beer. Um, but, uh, you know, you kind of consider that it's after sunset and it's actually the next day and Sunday's a feast day. So a lot of people will say, yeah, you can get up to sunset. It's, it's Lent, not Ramadan. Uh, well, I know, but, uh, it's kind of a Jewish tradition actually, the, uh, and Muslim transit, uh, uh, tradition that at sunset, it's basically considered the next day. So, oh, okay. Yeah. That's the way I'm going to. Talk or rationalize it. <laughs> I'm also giving up meat and poultry. I don't think uh, St. Gregory or whoever it was that founded the Gregorian calendar thought it worked that way. Well, I don't know. I have not talked to Greg, uh, St. Greg, <laughs> lately. Was he another big-ass fan man? Uh, he might be, yeah. Could be. So anyway, um, I, I'm also giving up meat and poultry for the entire uh, 40 day, 40-ish days of well, Lent. Even Italian chicken? Uh, even Italian chicken. So I'm glad oh, okay. I, I had a chance to eat some of that good stuff uh, yeah. over at Liz's place. So, um, yeah, we'll see how all that goes. I'm I'm not usually very successful at any of these things that I've decided to give up. So we'll see. But uh, anyway, that's uh, kind of it. Thank you again, Liz, for the uh, hospitality. It was good seeing you in person. And uh, look forward to any of you listening to the show. If you're probably listening to the audio-only podcast at this point, you're it's it's past history, uh, the uh, hops in the hangar on Saturday. The uh, 29th. I think it's sold out already. Uh, certainly, Greg says the website says it's uh, sold okay. out. So yeah, I okay. Bad it, luck. It went out. Uh, it got sold out pretty quickly, I think. Anyway, that's it for me. Uh, I do have, as I mentioned, next, next week I'm on a three-day trip. Uh, here, let me take a look and see exactly where I'm going to be. Uh, next week, uh, you can find that information on the APG community calendar, which is on our website or Slack. And it looks like I'm going to be in Philadelphia on Wednesday and Syracuse, New York on Thursday. So, um, it's a wonderful time of year to be flying up to Philly and Syracuse. Sarcasm. And now it's time to talk about those wonderful people, members of our Coffee Fun Cadre Coffee Bar Club. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh yeah, that is the Jeff Smith singing the Java Jive for our coffee fund folks. And a couple of different ways that you can join the club um, information about it over on our website uh, the first is the coffee fun classic method and since the last episode we have a couple of recurring donations from Vignair 
Orn Duanison. He needs to send him feedback and pronounce his name so I can do it correctly. I'm sure I'm butchering that. And Jason Coons. So thank you, both of you, for doing the classic fund or the classic method. And also, we have Patreon. And if you want to become a patron of the show, as Brian Hanekuk, Hancock, Hanekuk, I'm thinking, Hancock, I don't know. Uh, H-A-N-E-C-A-K, a new producer. Yay. Thank you, Brian, for become a, becoming a patron of the show. So if you want to join these wonderful people, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. And there you'll get instructions on how you can become part of the coffee fund. Thank you. Let's start with the first item in the feedback folder, which is uh, from Michael or Michelle. What would you say, Nick? Uh, I think it's Michelle. Michelle. Okay. We're going to get a violation from YouTube for that. There you go. Oh, well. Uh, hello, Captains Jeff, Nick, Dana, and Dr. Stefan Liz. With the recent bushfires in Australia, I thought you might be interested in this circular release. And it's uh, from an aeronautical information circular. Uh, BOM, Bombay, to start using vertical visibility forecasts. Oh, wait a minute. That's not right. Uh, BOM, in this case, stands for the Bureau of Meteorology. To help pilots flying in areas impacted by bushfire smoke, the BOM, will provide information on VV, vertical visibility. Uh, the VV will tell pilots how much visibility they have above them and will be used at times when smoke is so thick that clouds cannot be easily seen. The forecast will therefore include vertical velocity, no, vertical visibility information rather than cloud at these times. When vertical visibility is forecast in lieu of cloud, pilots and operators should treat the vertical visibility height as being equivalent to an overcast layer of cloud and making operational decisions related to planning for an alternate aerodrome and determining whether to depart or continue a flight under the VFR, visual flight rules. So they give an example here. A vertical visibility will be given in hundreds of feet using three figures in the following format, VVNNN, where NNN is Height in hundreds of feet above aerodrome elevation, for example, 020 at 5 knots, 4000 FU, VV010. I'm sorry. Interesting. Didn't mean, didn't mean to be so rude there. Uh, FU in yeah, this case. FU too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Stands for. See, I knew we could work that in. Yeah, uh, FU too. That's 200 <laughs> feet. Yes. Uh, so FU, uh, guesses for the French word fume. I think we had a discussion about this on a previous episode. Um, and yeah, isn't like that a, a kind of wine as well? Yeah. It's a fume blanc, a white oh, smoky so that's wine. Got very poor vertical visibility in your wine. Yes, I guess. So hopefully we're not flying in the wine or whatever. Flying, <laughs> having consumed the wine. Yes, exactly. So we were discussing this before we started recording the show today, and um, both Nick and I have seen this before. It's not a, it's not a super common thing, but when there is smoke in the in the visibility limitations or whatever, um, 
yeah, it's not uncommon to see the uh, the vertical. Uh, I keep wanting to say vertical velocity, vertical visibility listed in the uh, in the METAR. Or, or yeah, I found a uh, an ICAO um, memo dated to 2013, which uh, highlights the requirements for vertical visibility in uh, METARs and species. So, uh, a special. Uh, um, change in weather that has generated an additional uh, actual. But uh, I think the slight difference with this, well, let me just first of all say that in uh, ICAO says that in METARS, uh, you should provide vertical visibility, um, which uh, has reduced your ability to see the lowest cloud layer. So uh, it occur in fog, rain, or snow, for example, and any other phenomena. 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 <laughs> yep, uh, which can reduce the visibility in the vertical and horizontal directions. So, in other words, uh, you know, you can basically say if it's a VV005, it would be, um, over, you consider it as an overcast of 500 feet, but it basically means you're sitting and you can't see in any direction, including upwards more than 500 feet. Um, the, I think the slight difference in this particular situation, because I've just pulled up the the aeronautical circular, uh, is that um, they're saying it should be in the forecast, not just in the METARS. So oh. um, they're saying uh, information vertical visibility will be provided in aerodrome forecasts, so TAFs, trend forecasts, TFs, and critical location forecasts within the geographical area forecast. Now, I'm not familiar with a GAF or a geographical area forecast, but mm. uh, um, I, I, it's obviously something specific perhaps to Australia. But anyway, um, they, they're going to put it in forecast, not just actuals, basically. Oh, okay. I'm wondering if this has anything to do, I don't know, maybe they mentioned in the, um, in the circular, with the uh, C-130, the Colson uh, C-130 crash. Um, I think it might Last well, uh, and I think that, you know, in a country that's affected by a lot of uh, reduced visibility that isn't really due to, uh, you know, weather so much as other effects, like obviously the forest fires, the enormous forest fires they've had, mm -hmm. perhaps they consider it a much more important factor. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, thank you, Michelle or Michael or whatever you are, or whoever you are, for sending in that feedback. We appreciate it. Um, Mike, another name that starts with an M, uh, sent us this, uh, he says he needs some help with the new phonetic alphabet. Uh, and I hadn't heard that there's really? going to be a new phonetic alphabet. No! What's, what's wrong with the one we have now, Nick? I, I, well, it took me long enough to learn the damn thing. <laughs> well, here, let me give you a little taste of this new one. And uh, I think you'll see why this is superior to the one that we're used to at this point. Uh, this is a uh, non-official for immediate release from the DODJ, which is the Department of Dumb Jokes, Washington, <laughs> D.C. Uh, not the Pentagon, but the Octagon. Okay. <laughs> okay, very uh, good. So due to the rise of social media and the increasing use of emojis for use instead of the written word, the DOD is planning to update and modernize the current phonetic alphabet. To this end, we are soliciting for guidance and input from veterans, active duty, and civilians of all stripes to help in the update. So that means you, dear listener, you can help with this. Uh, the following letters are proposed for the new improved phonetic alphabet, where there is a blank, or in this case, uh, question marks, 
Um, it looks like, uh, the DODJ brainiacs are screwing up and they need help. All input is welcome. The only criteria is that, uh, it's not in whatever language they speak in Iran. Far side, we think. No, that's not far side. It's far seat. I don't know what that has to do with anything there, that last sentence. But anyway, continuing, uh, A is, uh, the word aisle. Uh, B, delium. Uh, the letter C, czar. Uh, e, well, D, they're not sure. They haven't come up with a good one for D, so you might, you know, have an idea. Uh, e, elephant. Um, I guess that, because that sounds like an L. Uh, F, they're not sure. They don't have a one for that. G, this is a good one. Nat. Oh, excellent. Uh, yes. Uh, H, hombre. <laughs> yeah, you get the. You get the gist of this thing. There, all these words are words that start with a certain letter, but they don't really sound like that letter at all, or the letter is silent. Uh, pneumatic for P. Um, let's see, mnemonic for oh, yes, M. I like I like M. Mnemonic, <laughs> very good. Or how about J? Jorge or jalapeno? Still undecided. They haven't figured out exactly what. <laughs> Very cute, very cute. This uh, again from I Mike. always thought that was pronounced jalapeno, but obviously that's the way I pronounce it, jalapeno. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. <laughs> in fact, now, this brings to mind the one that my mum taught me uh, that she learned in the Second World War, uh, which was a, a, an equivalent joke one, uh, which went something I can only remember a few of them. Um, a for horses. A for horses. Uh, C was C for yourself. Uh, D was deferential. E uh, was Eva Brick. Uh, F was effervescent. Oh, effervescent. I like yes. that. Yes. Your mom uh, came and up with that. Huh? So uh, ah. they, but in those days, you used to say uh, A for, it would be A for alpha, B for bravo. Mm-hmm. So you'd always include the word four in there. So it doesn't work. If you take out four, it doesn't work. <laughs> No, we don't do that anymore. Well, I think I re- in grade school, I think A is for apple, B is for banana, bad child. <laughs> <laughs> Heard that one a lot because you couldn't get apple right. Right. Uh, anyway, thanks, Mike, for some levity. Appreciate that. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, this uh, item number three is from Landon out in Northern California. And let's see, really playing the, um, I'm not sure playing the video will really have or add a lot to this coverage on the show, but we do need to say you need to watch the video to see what happens in it. And uh, let me just read what Landon says here. Hello, APGers. Dr. Steph, Captain Nick, Captain Dana, Liz, Miami Rick, and, uh, well, on to my feedback. Boy, some dirtbag lasered the wrong airplane. A California Highway Patrol GA-8 made down under. So we have heard of red lasers and green lasers, but blue? I didn't even know such a thing existed, let alone civilians being able to get their stinking hands on it. This is scary. In the link below, you will find a video of a dirt bag flashing a blue laser beam at a fellow brother and aviator in blue uniform, that is. Well, actually, it's more like a tan uniform, but you get my point if you're from California. 
yeah, I think the uh, the uh, police, uh, the highway patrol officers wear um, brown or tan. But yes, this is preposterous. After talking to a very knowledgeable person about this incident, I learned that not many pilots out there are prepared with safety glasses outside of the red and green spectrum. There is something, uh, this is something that I think we all as pilots must be aware of. The good thing is that this brother in blue and dear friend of the APG community came out okay and was able to work with his flight officer in the backseat to find and apprehend this suspect. He has been arrested and charged both by the state of California as well as being federally screwed by the FBI. (laughs) Good for him. Again, I write this to bring this threat to our attention as pilots, as this incident in particular seemed to be a lot more serious as the blue laser is probably the brightest one we will see in a night sky. Uh, When I watched the, uh, let's see, was it forward-looking infrared? Um, Is that what FLIR stands for? Um, but yes, uh, when it I, does. when I watched the FLIR video, it was so bright that it appeared to have damaged the camera slightly, but I'm no expert. Well, I hope you're all doing well across the APG community. Oh yeah. Big props to Jan, the man Sears on a job well done. Yes. He is that community member that was affected by this blue laser. And uh, did Jan actually take you up in his airplane, Nick? Or no, we we planned to. And of course, uh, I don't know if you remember, he took that fabulous uh, video of me getting airborne out of uh, San Francisco. Notice I managed to restrain myself there from saying San Fran or Cisco or oh yeah, very SF. Good. Yeah, thanks. Um, so uh, yeah, which uh, he then posted and sent me. Uh, you know, a mixture of. Uh, of um, normal camera and infrared. It looked just fabulous, uh, which he managed to do from his uh, Jeep, uh, Ameri- uh, oh, sorry, Australian caravan thing mm-hmm. lying around. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was, it was absolutely brilliant. And, of course, we met, and I've got a, a challenge coin uh, in my cupboard behind me that uh, he very kindly gave me. So uh, all great things. But I never managed to get airborne with him, which would have been fantastic. I'd have enjoyed that as no- enormously. Very good. Now, in the uh, chat room, we have uh, Captain Nudge. Now, I do remember when he was flying the Jaguar, we were having a conversation one day, and he said, yeah, we've got laser range finding now on this Jaguar. Uh, and, uh, of course, if we turn it on and fly around with it by, in accident, by accident, we could end up blinding the civilian population because it's a very powerful laser. Mm. And uh, what's more, it's, it transmits outside the visible spectrum. So you wouldn't even know it was uh, hitting you. Um, you know, and you'd look up at the airplane and uh, you could, well, cop an Eiffel. Um, mm. So perhaps he will um, mention it uh in the chat room, we can go on to it a bit more. But, uh, yeah, um, pretty damn uh, dangerous. I don't know if blue is a specifically uh, more powerful or has more effect on our eyes than red or green, but I, I, I think red is reasonable. Mm-hmm. Green, I know, can be more powerful, and I don't know enough about lasers to be able to comment with any authority. Yeah, I think that the um, the green and blue part of the color spectrum is a lot higher energy or maybe uh, tighter wavelength or something like that. I'm not an expert in this either, but I know that red is usually chosen for like easier on our eyes, like a lot of our instrumentation and that kind of stuff uh, tends to use a lot of red 
or used to anyway, maybe not so much anymore. Maybe they decided that wasn't a good thing to do. I don't know. But uh, yeah, very good. Um, so let's see how he finishes by saying um, big props to Jan, the man Sears on the job. Well done. And all of the California highway patrol officers that keep us safe on the road, blue skies and tailwinds with Cavu days. P.S. Hey, Captain Jeff, long time, no recognition. <laughs> I gave him a bad time um, on the last uh, piece of feedback that Landon sent in because he didn't. He said hello to everybody but me. Anyway. Yes, I know. Well, he does that deliberately. So I know he's a mean guy. He can be. Yeah. He's yeah. Very mean. Anyway, so job well done. Yes, we uh, uh, we agree, uh, Landon, that. Uh, that uh, Jan uh, did a great job uh, handling that situation and apprehending that that perp. So. Exactly. Now, I've never even seen blue lasers uh, on sale, and I don't know what you'd use them for. I don't know. Uh, yeah. So very not very common, I guess. Yeah. All right. Let's continue with item four from Tanya. And she says, well, after a long dry spell, I have, uh, sorry to hear that. I have an epic, at least in terms of length, sorry, audio feedback. And uh, let's see, I've been meaning to do this one for years and I finally finished it. The time clocks in at 22 minutes. So if you choose to run the whole thing, maybe you want to split it in half. Okay, this is kind of behind the scenes communication that she's uh, doing with us. Um, so it, it's a wonderful. Um, uh, oral history that she is reading uh, from, well, you'll hear uh, from whom um, once we start the audio feedback. We decided to go ahead and split this up into two segments. So we're going to play part one on today's show and then part two on the next episode. So take it away, Tanya. Hello, APG crew and APG community. This is Tanya in New York City. Long time, no feedback, so I'm going to try and make it up with this extra long feedback. Hope that's not a problem. So although the show primarily deals with aircraft flying in our atmosphere, uh, it also seems that most people, both on the crew and the community, also have an interest in space and also an interest in photography. So that's what this feedback concerns. Back in 2003, I was on a Caribbean cruise on Celebrity Cruise Lines in Varenaise, and one of the lecturers that was just happened to be booked on that cruise was a gentleman by the name of Dick Underwood, who was very prominent in the NASA photography department. And he gave three lectures on the cruise. And fortunately, I caught all of them because he was just so fascinating, a total character, completely larger than life, and had just so many great stories. So once I got back uh, home and did a little research on him, I discovered that he had participated in an oral history project that Johnson Space Center was organizing. And so I'm going to read some excerpts from that oral history. I believe, you know, government property, it's public domain, so I don't think it will be an issue at all in that regard. I'm going to try and keep it kind of brief, but it's just there's so much in here. But I will include for the show notes, if Jeff is so kind, uh, to include them a link to the full oral history so you can listen to that uh, or read that at your leisure. 
So just to start off as an introduction into this uh, wonderful gentleman, I'm just going to read a really brief obituary, which does a, a really great job of summarizing what he did and what he was about. Richard Underwood, 1927 to 2011, known as the astronaut's photography coach, Richard Whedon, quote unquote, Dick Underwood, assistant to the photo chief for Mercury, Gemini and Apollo, has died at age 83. The first person to view every photo from the Gemini missions through the first 23 space shuttle missions. He also provided technical training for every astronaut who flew in space during the 20th century. Profiled in the 2006 book, Apollo Moon Missions, The Unsung Heroes, Underwood told author Billy Watkins that his favorite photograph was Buzz Aldrin's boot print on the moon, but that the most meaningful to him was a photo showing the American flag planted by Apollo 17. The best photo snapped in space, according to Underwood, was the first of the full Earth known as the Blue Marble Shot. So that's just a quick intro, and I'll go ahead now with a few excerpts from the oral history to separate some of the sections, like the main sections. There'll be a little guitar riff, and in other sections where I've just trimmed out a little bit, I'll just mention it as we go along. So here we go. Richard W. Underwood, interviewed by Summer Chick Bergen. Yes, that was that person's name. Houston, Texas, October 17th, 2000. Bergen. I was hoping you might give us a brief background on your career prior to your coming to NASA so we can get a little bit of your history. Underwood. Well, going way back, I was in the Navy in World War II in the 7CB Battalion, which was an amphibious assault ammunition stevedore battalion. We carried the Marines' ammos for them to the beaches. I had the GI Bill, so I went off to a university, University of Connecticut, got a degree there, then did other work at University of Wyoming, Colorado School of Mines, because I got interested in earth sciences and what have you, and George Washington University in Washington, D.C., when I went to work for the U.S. Army engineers there. I was a naval officer assigned to the Army engineers at that point because of an expertise in photogrammetry and geodesy that the Army used and the Navy really didn't. Got to go all over the world on aerial photographic surveys, some for intelligence purposes, many for mapping and geodetic information to determine the size and shape of the Earth, how we could launch intercontinental ballistic missiles with some degree of accuracy. Traveled many, many places." While in Honduras one time, I met a very beautiful young lady and we got married. She's over in Nassau Bay right now. 45 years later, we're still married. Five children put them through universities here in Texas. Let's see. Once I'd married my wife, the problem was she was a foreigner and I had special military clearances. They were very unhappy. The fact I married a foreigner. I had a general tell me I should be shot without a trial. I was a traitor to my country for marrying a foreigner. They pulled me off the high-flying airplanes, the U-2s and other very exotic airplanes, and sent me back to the B-17s. I'm deaf, as I said, in one ear because of 4,000 hours in B-17s. In fact, the one I stepped out of that day in Honduras and met my wife is at Ellington Field right now. It's one of the few surviving B-17s because it was used in aerial survey work and the ones that were bombers were all destroyed after the war when better bombers came along. But nothing beat the B-17 as a reconnaissance airplane till the U-2 came along. 
went back to the 17s after I got married on projects for the military and State Department and joint ventures and all that. When I got sort of sick of traveling with children, I wanted them to grow up in the country and not an itinerant life around the world. I went back to Washington and they assigned me rather mundane work to do. And I decided I was going to work for Geological Survey in Denver because I had trained on their equipment when I was at Colorado School of Mines, which is in Golden, right next to Denver. At that point, I got a call one day from a guy with a heavy German accent that said, they tell me you know something about cameras that fly high. I said, well, up to 70,000 feet. He says, do you think one could work at half a million feet? I says, well, that would be in space. And Dr. Werner von Braun says, well, let's give it a try. Come to Alabama, I want to talk to you. So it was Army ordnance, Army rockets, which are the best in the world compared to the Navy or the Air Force, ones which always blew up. The army ones always flew. I went down there and talked to him, and we began to hang some cameras on the early redstones. The reason why I was loaned to Von Braun was I didn't have Q clearance, and he didn't need one, and did other things in Washington, and then got loaned back to what became NASA at that point on several projects, particularly the Echo Balloon satellite projects, because they had problems, and we used photogrammetry to solve the problem. We could orbit the echoes. So it sort of went through the Mercury, which was a rather mundane operation. The photography was really nothing on Mercury, but it did prove that with the right equipment, you could do very interesting studies of the Earth on the synoptic view, this great view of the Earth that looks for hundreds of miles, in many cases, all the way to the horizon, and over a very short period of time. You know you orbit the Earth in 90 minutes. An airplane takes quite a bit longer. You could look at a very large area the same day, same weather conditions, same atmosphere, eliminate a lot of the problems. Say you want to photograph Cuba. I worked on that project for the aerial photos. It took a year. From a satellite, you could do it in a matter of about six minutes. So even the sun hasn't moved very much during that period of time. So I remember after Gemini 4, when Ed White did his spacewalk, we had a camera around there that Ed took outside, mainly to look at the outside of the machine because it was very badly damaged, the early ones, the Mercs and the early Geminis. Some engineers said it happens on the way up, others said it happens on the way back. Two different attitudes of engineering to fix it. We said one day in a meeting, why don't we photograph it when it's out there? Then we'll know whether the damage happened going up or coming back. White took 39 pictures, and Gilruth and Lowe and Faget and all the designers and what have you were looking at all these pictures on this magnificent roll of film, and we had it spread out in the lab there. Dr. Gilruth says to me, I'm down all alone looking at the other end of the roll, and he says, Hey, Dick, all the action's up here. I says, Well, I don't think so, Dr. Gilruth. I think it's all down here. And he came down and looked, and he said, Well, those are just pictures of the Earth. I said, Yeah, but we're looking at things that no human being has ever seen before, parts of Africa and other places. You can see what really goes on. I explained all these things to him. He said, well, from now on, your job is to work with the astronauts to be sure they bring back great photographs of the Earth, and then eventually when we go to the moon. So that's how it sort of evolved at that point. It evolved into this machine to take the lunar photographs on the surface and in orbit both. Underwood. Walter M. Shearer wanted to carry his personal camera, which was a Hasselblad, and Dr. Williams said, man, that's a big machine. This is Tanya, just a little um, excerpt cut out here, and now we're going back in. It was worked out with various people looking at it that the leather outgassed. 
they had leather on them in those days. This one doesn't, and made them look pretty, so all cameras had leather on them in those days. It outgassed. If you took the leather off, you had stainless steel, and the sunlight coming through the window bouncing off of it could permanently blind him. So you don't want blind astronauts. You got outgassing from lubricants. You had a viewfinder in it. This one doesn't have a viewfinder because they're useless out there. And they weigh a lot and they're made of glass. If you break one, all this stuff floating around in there. So in the Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, you couldn't distort your body very well to look out the window of those spacecrafts through a viewfinder. So they were taught to shoot from the hip like gun smoke. Draw and shoot, get your target. Also, it had a focal plane shutter, the Hasselblad 1000 in the 1600, and in zero gravity, they didn't accelerate and decelerate at a constant speed. They were designed for one gravity, and so were the springs and other things in the camera. So there were a lot of things wrong with it. When Shira was told this in a meeting, he broke down and started crying practically. I mean, just like a three-year-old kid who broke his favorite toy. Everybody thought that was rather unique, a number one Navy astronaut and so on, the original seven guys. Dr. Williams, after a while, he decided to give him his camera. So it was determined we'd modify one that would make it okay. Shira carried it, and from that day on, these things have been flying because it's a magnificent camera. So all the modifications that NASA talked Hasselblad into doing in building even this camera, we talked them into building this camera were the result of the space program, and that's why it's such a super reliable camera today, precision. Never going to fail you because we didn't have a failure. The whole time I was there at NASA, we never had a camera fail. They've had them fail since. Okay, uh, that is part one. Stay tuned for part two, the rest of the oral history excerpts of NASA's Dick Underwood. And I thought that was very interesting, Nick. Uh, you are a photographer. I'm not, but I do have a little bit of um, experience with uh, non-digital digital, uh, SLRs back in the day when I was a younger man, younger, younger person. Um, I thought it was pretty interesting what she was saying or what he was saying about the Hasselblad and how these things are designed to operate in a 1G environment and that when you get it 0G, all the springs and everything else, they're not going to work exactly the same way. No, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you do wonder what happens if you hold the camera upside down because uh, the shutter's moving uh, in the other direction then, so you'd have gravity working the wrong way. So, um, But I quite understand that. I mean, I remember the interview uh, I did with um, Jeff, Jeff Lee. Jeff. Um, yes, another Jeff. And uh, he was saying that the Rollerflex that he used uh, wouldn't operate over 4G. Uh, so he couldn't use that doing a lot of uh, the work he did uh, if they were pulling lots of G. So, you know, he had to modify uh, how he did air-to-air photography. So if he was intending to use that camera. So you, you don't really think about these things until you, uh, you know, trying to put them in strange situations, et cetera. Yeah, I love the what Werner von Braun said, yeah, how, how high have you gotten that camera? Yeah, about 70,000. What about half a million? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> wow, that's pretty cool. Well, camera as a camera is going to work, uh, you know. You in fact, think. it's going to be beautiful out there because yeah. there's no atmosphere to distort the image. Uh, right. Some brilliant. amazing shots of um, the, the fake um, sphere of the Earth because we all know it's flat. Yeah. Right. Yeah, very true. Okay. Yes. Oh, it might be a disc. 
Or a disc. And then yeah. It might be a held flat, up by some turtles and elephants. A flat disc. And anyone who uh, reads uh, Terry Pratchett will understand where I'm going with that. <laughs> I don't, and so I have no idea. But I'm just going to laugh. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like Terry I get Pratchett, it. marvelous British author. At, oh. uh, at one time, the most prolific uh, uh, living author. Um, and uh, did a whole series of books about a world that was made of a disc, and it was supported on the backs of elephants that stood on a turtle in outer space. Oh, well, there you go. Thank you for educating me and many other people listening. Um, we're going to go ahead and skip five for now, because that's another piece of audio feedback, and I want to spend some time on it, and I'd like to go to uh, item number six. and. Um, this is from Mark, and I believe it was the last show that we talked about the F-16, uh, the air traffic controllers being honored uh, by or for helping an F-16 pilot get um, the rendezvous with a uh, tanker to get more fuel. And um, he says, did I miss something about the story or did no one else notice the huge elephant in the room? Why was the F-16? down to just 15 minutes of fuel. Do they not have similar rules as the civilian world as far as keeping reserves on each flight? I'm sure you and Nick could have given us listeners more information on how this scenario might have come about. Oh, take a slap on the wrist, well, I know. Jeff. Well, yeah, we could have, <laughs> well, yeah, but, but we didn't feel know, like it. And then we'd have to shoot you. Yeah. So, and you know what? Secret stuff, this. Mark yeah. is like, uh, you know, kind of rude. You know, yeah. In yeah. fact, but so much so now that I'm thinking, I'm not even going to continue with this. I'll just do something well, else. But he's only the Basler Fueler at Air Venture, so ah. what do you expect? <laughs> so he continues. What situations might you get into as a military pilot, where you might end up with little fuel left on board, and whether covered destinations could become a critical issue? Is this a common or a rare thing? And are there military regulations that should prevent this happening? What do you think, Nick? Well, actually, uh, I was being a little rude to Mark. It's a great question. Yeah, uh, it is. And uh, the, the short answer is, no, of course, you don't work to the same rules and regulations of the civilian world um, because uh, you work to a much higher level of risk if you need to in the military. It doesn't mean to say you do it all the time, but... Uh, yeah, you um, you definitely don't keep the same kind of safety reserves as you would as a civilian airline pilot. So generally speaking, uh, our fuel reserves uh, allowed us to have fuel for a local diversion. Uh, it usually wasn't very far away. And there's, you know, uh, the, the legal absolute minimum uh, you're going to have on an airliner is 30 minutes of fuel. Uh, there's no way we would carry that amount of fuel in a fighter. Think about it, our average sortie length was probably about an hour and a half. You're not going to have 30 minutes of extra fuel plus diversion fuel plus everything else. You'd, you'd only be airborne for like 30 minutes, then you have to turn around and come home again. So yeah. um, you carry much smaller reserves, much, much smaller reserves. So uh, I think um, when we, on a good day, we would come back with a minimum of fuel for uh, a couple of circuits and a diversion. Uh, so, uh, and if you diverted, you would be landing uh, with a, a wiringly small amount of fuel. You might have five minutes, 
left after a diversion. But you would have fuel for that diversion. And funnily enough, those fuel levels were set by another of your mates who was in the tower that day as the duty pilot. And he would be looking at the local conditions and he would be watching continuously as to what's going on at your airfield. And that was just his job. He sat in the tower and decided what fuel everyone was going to land with. And uh, yeah, I know my videos. <laughs> I'll, I'll I, fix it in a second. I didn't expect you to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I was just playing around because your your video's frozen, and I thought I'd just yeah, play yeah, in the so, video. <laughs> yeah, now you got something else to edit. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Anyway, uh, so he would uh, keep an eye on exactly what's going on, and as he saw weather coming in, he would automatically um, raise the minimum amount of fuel that you would be required to come back. So he might impose instrument landings only, which added an extra X amount of fuel uh, onto your uh, minimums so that you could now conduct a uh, an instrument approach, which takes longer and consumes more fuel than a visual approach. Um, and, uh, you know, that would be his job. Uh, and occasionally you'd get it wrong. So, uh, you know, hence my uh, story of the six uh, hunters that crashed in 10 minutes because mm. they all ran out of fuel because the weather changed dramatically and uh, unexpectedly and they made a bit of a mistake. So what was it six in one day? Is that what the, name, the title well, of that? that was the name of the, yeah, it was the name of the tale, six in one day, but uh, in, in reality it was six in 10 minutes. Uh, mm. so. Wow. All around the village of Swaffham. Well, if you want to, if you haven't heard that plain tale, Yet, uh, in the show notes, we'll have the link that takes you directly to that page on our website, and then you can listen to it. Um, yeah, Mark, we were just playing around. We weren't. We didn't think you were being rude at all. And uh, I was going to say, as as Nick did a wonderful job explaining, especially in the fighter world, um, in the training world, pretty much the same kind of deal. You know, you're very rarely ever away from very far from the base and you don't have the same kind of reserves that you, that you do in the civilian world. Um, also, um, most of these airplanes that we're talking about here uh, have ejection seats. So, you know, you have a, a the last ditch kind of option uh, that if you completely ran out of fuel, then you could eject from it. That's not optimum, of course. Um, but in the uh, mission of flying transports, uh, it is much, much more similar to the world of airline flying where you had a minimum um, a reserve amount and fuel for the alternate and everything else almost identical uh, from what i can remember uh flying the c141 back in the day in the 80s and let's see nick is saying to me that that uh, that plain tale was played on apg episode 255 Oh, that was Liz that told us that. Thank you, Liz, our producer, doing some work in the background, some sleuthing. Um, so, again, uh, the link to that will be in the show notes. And I think that is a reasonable answer to Mark's question. What do you think, Nick? Uh, yeah, I think we've covered it. Uh, yeah. So I thought now might be a good time for us to play the best part of the show, which, of course, everybody knows is the old pilot's plain tales, and this week's is Goose is Dead. The old pilot's plain tales, Goose is Dead. 
the new Top Gun movie is coming out soon and I, for one, will be there, hoping to relive some of the great moments from the first movie and hear some more classic lines like... You screw up just this much, you'll be flying a cargo plane full of rubber dog shit out of Hong Kong. And I'll probably excuse most of their flagrant errors as well. The first Top Gun came out in 1986 when I was still flying the F-4 Phantom and with its great music score and brilliant flying sequences most of us forgave the inaccuracies that peppered the movie. The inspiration for the film came from an article by Yehud Yone in the May 1983 issue of California magazine entitled Top Guns. It's a great article and full of the Navy fighter slang of the period. To quote from the article, That's when it happens. Suddenly a soft voice is saying, Atoll, in the earphones. And by the time Possum spots the little F5 behind them, it's too late. They've been racing fat, dumb and happy like a dodo bird, and the F5, painted in desert camouflage no less, which stands out against the blue like a billboard, just rolled in. Out of nowhere, got on their tail and simulated slipping a heat-seeking missile up their exhaust pipe. It started out good, but sure got bad in a hurry, Possum says, laughing. Let me take you back for a moment to the Vietnam War. Things in the air hadn't been going as well as expected for the American Armed Services, and both the USAF commanders and the Chief of Naval Operations wanted an explanation. In the three years between 1965 and 68, the US flew about a million sorties, but had lost almost 1,000 aircraft. The two reports came to significantly different conclusions. The Air Force put its losses primarily down to unobserved MiG attacks from the rear and was therefore, in their minds, a technology problem. The USAF's response was to upgrade the Phantom's weapon system by including an internal M61 Vulcan cannon, as well as improving the radar and the tracking capabilities of their air-to-air missiles. The Navy took a different attitude, concluding that the problem stemmed from inadequate training in air-to-air combat. This gave birth to the United States Navy Fighter Weapons School, which was established at Naval Air Station Miramar on the 3rd of March 1969. Although it had humble beginnings and scant funding, its aims were more grand. The unit's purpose was to train fighter air crews at the graduate level in all aspects of fighter weapon systems, including tactics, techniques, procedures, and doctrine. It serves to build a nucleus of eminently knowledgeable fighter crews to construct, guide, and enhance weapons training cycles and subsequent aircrew performance. Air crews selected to attend the Top Gun course were chosen from frontline units. Upon graduating, these crews would return to their squadrons to relay what they had learned to their fellow crew members, in essence becoming instructors themselves. The Navy's doctrine worked, and their kill-to-loss ratio against the MiG soared from less than 4 to 1 to 13 to 1, 
whilst the Air Force's kill ratio actually worsened. However, in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, the USAF initiated their own robust air combat training program with the formation of dedicated aggressor squadrons, training I was lucky enough to participate in. The Top Gun course was designed to train already experienced Navy and Marine Corps aircrews in all aspects of strike fighter aircraft employment, including tactics, hardware, techniques, and the current world threat for air-to-air and air-to-ground missions. The current course includes 80 hours of lectures and 25 sorties that pit students against Top Gun instructors. When a pilot or WSO completes the Top Gun course, they return as a training officer carrying the latest tactical doctrine back to their units. Most Air Forces have their equivalent, and when I was lucky enough to become a qualified weapons instructor, the RAF's course was six months long and considered the toughest flying course in the Royal Air Force. The Top Gun course was five weeks, although it currently runs to nine weeks. I guess us Brits are just slow learners. Back to the movie version of Top Gun. Iceman, for reasons not entirely clear, has one of their opponents cold. He's sitting right on the A-Force tail, but seems completely unable to get a gunshot despite vocal encouragement from all around him. Look at this! I can take a shot right here! I need another 20 seconds, then I've got it. Perhaps being only 30 feet away, he was finding the size of his target intimidatingly large. Goose and Maverick feel sure they can do a better job and try to get Iceman to disengage high right. Come on, Ice, get the hell out of there. Let's do it, Mav. Ice, come off high right. I'm in. Five more seconds. Come off high right, Ice. I'm in. I'm off. Which, after making the daisy chain last just a little bit longer, he does. Apparently unprepared for the manoeuvre he's just called for, Maverick flies through his jet wash, which makes his F-14 bleep a lot and do multiple aileron rolls, which apparently needs both hands on the stick to control. All of this would have any fighter pilot cringing. Now Maverick's engines flame out within a second of each other, and bravo to Goose, who identifies the failures, but then misidentifies them. Number one is on the left, Goose. But then I shouldn't speak ill of the dead. Many years of military flying took me through a lot of jet wash, and this hasn't happened to me or anyone I knew, but perhaps the F-14 had a few engine issues. Well, stone the crows. It did. So let's have a little look at that great fighter. The Tomcat was designed as both an air superiority fighter and a long-range naval interceptor. With its flexible array of weapons from the N61 Vulcan cannon, the short-range infrared heat-seeking AIM-9 Sidewinders, the longer-range semi-active radar-guided AIM-7 Sparrow, to the ultimate long-range weapon of the time, the AIM-54 Phoenix, it was very well armed. The Phoenix was a remarkable weapon. 
a version was designed specifically for the Tomcat, and it weighed a thousand pounds, nearly half a metric ton. The F-14 could carry six of them, although a more common mix was two sidewinders, three sparrows, and a pair of phoenixes. Uh, the word phoenix has Greek roots, so the plural goes the same way as appendix, becoming appendices, but sadly, phoenixes is gaining traction. Combined with the Tomcat's Org 9 trackwall scan radar, six Phoenixes could be launched simultaneously against six separate targets. The missile would hoof upwards into the stratosphere to around 90,000 feet at nearly Mach 5 whilst getting mid-course guidance from the F-14 and then use its own fully active radar to complete its intercept and go bang. The Phoenix was sold to Iran in 1974 and was credited with 62 kills during the Iran-Iraq war. It had a powerful warhead and on one occasion a single missile brought down three MiG-23s in a formation and damaged a fourth. Despite trying a few times, the US Navy weren't quite so successful. The F-14 came from the era when variable geometry wings were all the rage, but it also employed large, fixed wing gloves and a very wide fuselage so that it didn't need the complication of wing-mounted stores that would have to swivel when the wings swept. It carried all its missile housings and pylons on the fuselage or the wing gloves. It reached the Navy's requirement for a Mach 2.4 top speed and was stressed to 7.5G. Again, for simplicity, the wings had no ailerons, which allowed for full-span slats and flaps. To manoeuvre, the Tomcat used its large tailplanes for both pitch and roll, aided by wing-mounted spoilers. The most worrying aspect of the F-14, certainly in the early versions, were the Pratt & Whitney TF-30 engines, the world's first afterburning turbofan. This engine had a challenging start to life that came partly because of a desire to have it power both the F-111 and the F-14. It was underpowered for the job and failed to meet the one-to-one -one power ratio requirement demanded. It was also poorly suited to the rigours of air combat and prone to compressor stalls at high angle of attack, particularly when combined with aggressive throttle movements. So let's give the movie the benefit of the doubt when Maverick manages to stall both his TF-30s. Ah, sorry, that wouldn't work. He would need to stall just one and leave the other in full blower, then being widely spaced on the Tomcat's broad fuselage and at high level of attack, that might induce enough yaw to enter a spin. OK, whatever. Maverick gets into a spin. So, what's a spin, let alone a flat one? To get into a spin, Maverick has first to go through the incipient phase, when the aircraft simply auto-rotates. When his Tomcat yaws, it will have an advancing wing and a retreating wing, and they both need to be at the point of stalling and moving further into a stalled state. The retreating, or inside wing, will be moving slower, and therefore be more stalled than the outside, or advancing wing. 
So the inside wing has more drag from the stall as well as less lift, which means that the aircraft will continue to yaw and roll into the spin. And the incipient phase lasts a couple of turns, and the aircraft follows a ballistic flight path. This is also the easiest phase to recover from, as merely centralising the controls whilst easing the stick forward is usually enough to unstall the wings and recover. If the spin is allowed to develop, it enters the steady phase, which is self-sustaining. There are now two forces acting on the aircraft, aerodynamic and inertial. If Maverick and Goose are spinning right, the aircraft will be rolling and yawing right, pitching up and side-slipping left. This combination gives the spin its characteristic spiral path towards the ground. The inertial components are like three gyros moving around the aircraft's three axes. Looking down from above, we will see the plan form, which is spinning right and called the C-axis. The pitching force acting on the front of the aircraft will gyroscopically precess through 90 degrees and then act, causing an anti-spin roll force, but not strong enough to overcome pro-spin forces. The rolling force acts on the right wingtip upwards, which precesses through 90 degrees, and forces the nose up, which is a pro-spin force, and it keeps the wings stalled. I won't describe the actions of all three gyros and the six forces acting on them, as it's both tedious and a bit confusing without a chalkboard, but be assured, depending on the proportion of the mass of the aircraft and the ratio of the forces particularly the B over A ratio. Uh, the B axis is the one through the wings and the A axis runs through the fuselage. An aircraft will be easy or hard to break from a spin. The centre of gravity also has a strong influence and we can generally say that an aircraft with a forward C of G will be spin resistant and recovery prone whilst a, an R C of G has the opposite and more dangerous effect. A flat spin is where the axis of spin rotation is a long way back, close to the centre of gravity, and all parts of the aircraft rotate with the same yaw rate. The aircraft looks almost horizontal, but can spin at quite a rate, forcing the pilot and his wizzo against their straps with considerable force. In a flat spin, the aircraft is only going one way, and that's straight down. Mayday, mayday. Mav's in trouble. He's in a flat spin. He's heading out to sea. Recovery from a spin usually requires the wings to be unstalled by applying forward stick, but note that the gyroscopic effect is pro-spin, so this may make the aircraft actually spin faster before the spin breaks and the rudder needs to be applied in the opposite direction to the rotation as it's a large control surface and has a strong anti-spin effect which can dominate all others. This might seem obvious, but a spin can be very disorientating, particularly inverted spins, and some poor pilots have applied the wrong rudder all the way down to the crash. Ailerons can also have an important effect depending on the design of the aircraft, but generally in-spin aileron is bad and out-spin aileron good. Just remember, when the spin stops, centralise the rudder and gently ease out of the ensuing dive. 
I think we can now deduce why Maverick supposedly couldn't get to the ejector seat handles. Perhaps he should have gone to the gym a bit more, or perhaps played some more volleyball. Leaving their combined ejection to his poor Wizzo, who was actually doing a terrible job of calling the height, their altimeter read just over 3,000 feet as he called 6,000, Goose failed to jettison the canopy clear before ejecting. Now, big canopies like the Tomcats are usually lifted into the slipstream by explosive bolts under the rail, and then the air carries it away. However, the F-14 had a Martin Baker Mark GRU-7A seat, which was a rocket-assisted 00 seat, so the jettison system should have been powerful enough for it to catapult the canopy clear before the seat fired. One can only assume that the airflow pattern around the spinning aircraft was sufficient to capture it and keep it close enough to give Goose a headache. They certainly left it late. Even a zero-zero seat will have trouble coping with more than one-tenth of the rate of ascent in height, so 30,000 feet per minute going down is around 3,000 feet. Luckily for Maverick, Goose was kind enough to knock the canopy out of the way so that he could appear in the sequel. The inquiry held Maverick blameless. We find that the F-14 flat spin was induced by the disruption of airflow into the starboard engine. This disruption stalled the engine, which produced enough yaw rate to induce a spin which was unrecoverable. I'm not sure I'd have been so quick, particularly having seen both engines fail almost simultaneously. The tragedy of the storyline was actually reflected in real life, as you can see if you watch the credits, where the last line states, This film is dedicated to the memory of Art Scholl. Art was an American aerobatic pilot, aerial cameraman, flight instructor, and educator based in Riverside, Southern California. He was well-known and hugely popular with airshow crowds, where he performed in his super chipmunk, often flying with his dog, Aileron, in the cockpit. His aerial camera work had appeared in many commercials, TV shows, and films, including The Right Stuff, The Great Waldo Pepper, Blue Thunder, The A-Team Chips, and Iron Eagle, as well as Top Gun. On the 16th of September 1985, he was filming from his Pitts S2 camera plane and intentionally entered a spin to capture footage for the very scene in the film that I've been talking about. As his aircraft passed the planned recovery altitude, he transmitted his final words. I have a problem. I have a real problem. After which, the plane impacted the ocean about five miles off the coast. The exact cause was never established, nor his body or the aircraft ever recovered. Whatever you take from this tale, please remember that a spin is an extreme manoeuvre and potentially deadly. Hey, why don't we go take a spin? <laughs> yeah, let's have a spin in a spitz. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you're kind of um, kind of a little nitpicky there, huh? <laughs> uh-huh. Well, I don't think it's entirely nitpicky. I just think they had a certain number of shots, uh, and they 
trying to make the story fit none of them. <laughs> <laughs> and quite a bit of uh, F-14 shaming going on there, too. I, well, I, I actually had a, a soft spot in my heart, despite the fact that it's variable <laughs> geometry. I don't yeah. have a lot of time for variable geometry aircraft. Um, I soft stopped my heart for the F-14 because I actually think it's a stunning-looking uh, piece of kit mm-hmm. uh, and um, fulfilled a fantastic role, very capable, and that Phoenix missile was something to behold. What uh, kind sadly, of missile was that? The, the Phoenix. Oh, Phoenix. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. What yeah. did you think I said? I, I don't know. Uh, just move on. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> now, how would, what was the, I, I know what's what the, he was thinking. What's the plural again? Yeah, well, you're a doctor. You think that way anyway. I've got a good joke to it. You know what? Your volume is way yeah. down. Better. That's better. better. You can just better. turn it all the way up. It's all the way up. Okay. Well, I'll have to do then. <laughs> all right. Um, uh, there, there were some glaring uh, errors in the movie. Uh, so let's just enjoy it for what it is. It's yeah. uh, it's a fun look at uh, some great flying sequences. and You don't have to think too hard about uh, the story. What do you think about the, or what have you heard about the the one that's about to be released this year, right? Yeah, yeah. This summer it should be. This I'm yeah. very excited about it because they claim that uh, all the sequences, uh, the aircraft sequences you'll see are actual aircraft being flown and not CGI. I think, generally speaking, they'll probably be able to do that. Um, but it requires uh, some you think about it, you've, a camera lens is, uh, you know, generally speaking, is a wide-ish angle. If you're trying to film uh, an area, it makes the airplanes look very small. You have to be very close together uh, for things to look uh, even close to um, impressive on the screen. And from what I see, that some of the maneuvers they perform are pretty top-notch. There's brilliant one of a a hornet pulling up uh, and, uh, but you know, doing one of those kind of flat plate Cobra style pitch ups and uh, then coming back down again and looking very good. It looks very close, but if you only have to see the blue angels do their thing to realize that uh, angles and perspective can make things look more dangerous than they are not belittling the blue angels. They really do fly just unbelievably tight formations Mm -hmm. but uh it you know when you see them do uh, aileron rolls and you think they're right up against each other in fact they're they're giving themselves a little bit of room to make it safe but you can't see that from the crowd line yeah it's still a good show though it's still a great show fantastic i think they'll do the same on the movie and i'm really looking forward to it i am too can't wait to see that film and talk about it on the show so well another great Plain tale. Thank you, Nick, for that. And oh, it was a fun one. I enjoyed that. Oh, I've got to thank someone. Oh, hang on. Okay, I've got to thank uh, Dave McKitchen. I think that's how you pronounce your name, uh-huh. Dave. You are the one that uh, gave me that suggestion a year ago. I'm sorry it's taken me so long to get round to it, but uh, thanks very much. Better late than never. Definitely, but it All was a right. uh, nicely timed, actually. Yes. Thank you, sir, for the suggestion. Hey, you hear that? That's the intro music for um, this young lady from her lakeside home in the Carolinas. She's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot. Her name, an all-around just great person, Dr. Steph. 
Oh, thank you, Captain Jeff. That was very, very kind words of you. I appreciate that. And I mean them all. Oh, even better. Except for the last thing. Like the last little bit that you threw yeah. in there about being an all-around good person? Yeah. That's fine. I understand. <laughs> no, I, I really meant that, too. <laughs> so, how, how have you been doing? I'm, I've been good. I've been busy. Mm-hmm. So, sorry I missed you all last week. I was um, out in Utah at a conference. Yeah, well, actually, tell us about that. Your conference. Yeah, so well, the conference was good. It was it was <laughs> not anything uh, super interesting for the folks listening to this particular podcast. It was mm-hmm. um, uh, up to date um, information regarding evidence and technology behind some of the stuff that we do and new devices and all that kind of stuff for spine injections. Um, but I do have some interesting stories related to the travel to and from said conference. Oh, do uh, tell. I think, I think the time you guys were uh, recording last week, I was actually on the ski slopes just getting started for the, the first day out there. So yeah, that was very mean, nice. we, we noticed that, uh, you made the choice to be on the slopes skiing instead of being in your hotel room in front of your computer and on the show. So yeah, we're going to let that go. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I did get to spend time with my brother skiing. So it was yeah, family as count. well. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Doesn't make it any better. <laughs> I understand. Just kidding. Uh, yeah. So anyway, so the conference is out in um, Park City, Utah, which is quite a ways from where I live out in the uh, on the East Coast. So a little bit of a flight to get over there. And on the first flight out, um, I was very excited because it was um, uh, A330, which is kind of unusual for a domestic flight here in the U.S. But I had an upgrade to business class and I was all excited for my live flat seat. And I was going to catch some some additional Zs because I was I was probably sleep deprived at the time. Um, and so I'd settled in. It was an early flight. They served breakfast. Great. I was watching a movie. Um, I think the new version of the Lion King, if you've seen it or not, it was actually no. very good. Hmm. Um, but I was only about not even halfway into it. And, uh, uh, just past the part where Simba's father dies. It was very sad. And hmm. actually a scene in a movie that's always made me tear up just a little bit, even though it's a, you know, cartoon, whatnot. So yeah, it probably made with, me tear up too. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sitting there tearing up a little bit, just cracked open a beer after my breakfast. And the, uh, someone gets on the, uh, PA and says, um, if there are any medical professionals, uh, on board who would be willing to provide assistance to a fellow passenger, uh, please ring your flight attendant call button. I said, Okay, okay. Like, dry off my eyes. You know, <laughs> not, not watching this. And swig, movie or just, yeah, just you know, gulp so, down this no, beer. No, no, no. I did not touch that. Before I just opened it, so I pushed the push the button, and flight attendant comes over, and she goes, "Um, so it's a twelve year old." And I went, "Oh, I'm not a pediatrician, and I can't remember the last time I really took care of a kid." She goes, "But I, th- I think it's just sinus issues. But you know, mom's really upset, and he seems to be in a lot of pain." I said, "That's that's good. We'll go over and, and take a look at him and see what's going on." So um, he was only sitting a couple rows behind me. Um, I get back there and then <laughs> four other doctors subsequently showed up. Um, all women, kind of a little surprisingly, all specialists, not a single family medicine doctor, general practitioner, pediatrician. None of us had any um, recent pediatric knowledge, which is for this particular problem, not a huge thing. But it, when it comes to medications and things like that, it, it can be a little bit tricky if you're not up to date on that type of stuff. So um Sat down, started talking to mom, started talking to the the kid, um, having a lot of facial pain. So just right underneath the, you know, par- like paranasal, underneath the eye, maxillary sinus area, um, started getting a little bit of a history. 
turns out that the week prior, he was treated with antibiotics for a sinus infection. So that all makes sense. Thought he was feeling better, but certainly if things aren't quite cleared up, you get up into an aircraft and you pressurize things a little bit and, and that uh, cabin altitude um, um, goes up. Um, even though you're not up as high as obviously the, the aircraft is, that can be very, very painful if there's a blockage there. Um, so and being, being that he's not an adult, it probably had something to do also, right? The your your sinus cavities and passages and stuff like that. Or by that point, are they pretty much already you know, fully? So here's where I'm. Uh, I would expect by twelve, perhaps pretty close yeah, to close to form, adulthood. Yeah, I'm not yeah. entirely certain on that, but okay. I wouldn't expect it to be too too different. But yeah. um, um, so we're sitting there trying to myself and and one of the other docs did. Uh, uh, stuck around for a few minutes and the flight attendant were trying to get some of this history and talk to the kid and figure out, you know, how he's really feeling other issues going on, make sure he's not actually feeling sick, that type of stuff. And um, there's another flight attendant that keeps coming back and she, they had apparently let the um, uh, pilots know and she kept coming back and saying, Captain needs you to talk to MedLink now, talk to MedLink now. And I was like, okay, we're going to, but like, you know, I need some information to, to give them. And that's probably not a bad idea because, um, Again, us not being pediatricians and not being 100% certain on doses of medications that we'd like to give. And, you know, just that's what they deal with every day, too. So they'll probably have some tricks and things up their sleeve that we might have not even thought of. So got as much information as we could, went over it, um, and, and the flight attendant got on with MedLink and was having a very hard time hearing, unfortunately. So she said, do you mind talking to them? Because they're they're asking questions and they're medical questions, and I'm not sure I'm understanding correctly. I said, yeah, sure, no problem. So... That was kind of an interesting experience, but the um, the connection just trying to hear was very difficult. Um, it was very quiet, and then there was always a, a kind of a big pause, you know, in between relaying a message and then waiting for the next one to come back. Interestingly, the first question they wanted to know was, uh, has the ill passenger recently been to China or been in contact <laughs> with anyone who may have come in contact with coronavirus? And we went, uh, we, we didn't ask that. Yeah, not something that right. usually comes up in conversation. No, not usually. So like, well, before we do anything else, we need to know about that. Okay, fine. So go back, ask questions. No, it turns out hadn't traveled outside of, you know, um, state of North Carolina or, or somewhere nearby where we departed from for quite a long time. So that was all good. Um, and then we just kind of just went from there, just talking about medications that we should give, what had already been given. Um, mom had some stuff with her and had already given some decongestants and some pain relievers. Um, so we decided we were going to give those some time to take effect. Um, we had an additional pain reliever that we could have them take right then and there. Um, some warm compresses, you know, start sipping on some, some water, chewing some gum, just trying to open up all those passageways. And within about 45 minutes, an hour, he was actually feeling a whole lot better. But poor kid did look pretty miserable for a while. And mom was, you know, rightfully very concerned. Mm -hmm. so, um, interesting um, about that flight. Apparently, the uh, higher altitudes, the headwinds were exceptionally strong that day. So we were only, I think our top cruise altitude was 28,000 feet, which meant that the cabin pressure was only like 3,500 feet, which was probably a good thing. Yeah, we had gone much really. higher, it would have been a lot worse. And mm -hmm. then too, I was worried about um, on descent too, if things would get worse there again. Um, but coming down into Phoenix, it's a little bit higher elevation there as well. So that was that was good. We didn't have too much altitude to travel up and down in the cabin. So that's good. good stuff. Yeah. yeah. So that turned out well. Um, poor family was supposed to go on to Hawaii, and I think they made the, made the decision not to do that that day. So <laughs> didn't yeah. want to risk another episode of. I said that's that's a good idea. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So that was that was good. It was interesting. It took up um 
quite a bit of time on that flight and uh, helped pass the, uh, the time rather quickly there. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that all turned out well. Did you ever get to watch the rest of the uh, remake nope. of? Oh, no. <laughs> I only got about halfway through it. Darn it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I think I, ch- I uh, switched to something um, a little less uh, heavy. So mm-hmm. not that the Lion King is heavy, but something definitely more comedy oriented after that, just yeah. in case I had to keep getting up and going back. So, yeah. And then, um, let's see, on the way back, um, nice day for flying. Flight from, uh, flew out from Salt Lake City, had to go through Chicago O'Hare. Everything was on time, went down, boarded the aircraft, um, nothing unusual, pushed back. And while we were pushing back, I wasn't paying a ton of attention to what was going on. I was looking for a podcast to listen to, I think. And then I was vaguely aware that we stopped and we were stopped for quite a while. And then uh, there was a PA made that um, there was an issue with... The term used was gear pin, which I actually think was not entirely correct. Um, And that there was potential issue with the nose gear because something wasn't done correctly or there was an issue as we were pushing back. So we got towed back into the gate. um, And what I think actually happened was this was a uh, Boeing 737. And from talking with Colonel Jeff and others, there's a bypass pin for when you're pushing the aircraft back that has to be um, in place so that it bypasses the hydraulics so that it's not going to interfere with that. And it allows uh, steering from the, the tug, basically. Am I explaining that correctly, Captain Jeff? Yes. It, it yeah. basically disconnects the hydraulic power or pressure to the nose wheel steering cylinders so that they can freely move the nose wheel from the tow bar. Um, well, something happened where either that pin was not inserted or it broke or fell out or something along those lines, but it caused damage to the nose gear hydraulic system. So uh, we could not take that aircraft to Charlotte. So they had to find us a new aircraft and they kind of released everyone back into the, uh, into the terminal with instructions on where to go and get on the next aircraft. And mm-hmm. um, fortunately everyone seems like made it back to the, to the other gate that we were supposed to go to. And it really wasn't too long of a delay. So about an hour and a half, but just, you know, stuff happens sometimes when you're, when you're traveling. Well, so when you were heading out, uh, any any troubles with your connection? Uh, yeah, but I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm just wondering. There was, there was <laughs> uh, yeah, I decided not to talk about that one. Okay. Um, there was just a very, very short amount of time. And then um, um, let's just say there were some customer service issues that I thought <laughs> were not very good. So, uh, yeah. Uh, sorry to hear anyway. that. That's okay. We've, I think we've got it resolved. So it's all okay. good. Yeah. Well, who knows, but I've, I've moved on. I'm not going to continue yeah. to be angry about that. Okay. Um, and what else? There's actually, actually more stuff on uh, Monday. Um, did a little bit of indoor skydiving. So that was fun. Um, haven't done some of that for a while. And then afterwards went up uh, and immediately had a little meetup with, um, you remember Corey Cave who just yeah. upgraded to captain. He was mm-hmm. in town because he's, working um, with his airline as uh, a pilot interviewer. Mm -hmm. So he was in town to do some interviews and met up with him and one of the other interview captains. And we just had a, uh, well, I think I was the only one having a beer. They were having Coke and water and whatnot and being healthy Mm -hmm. and chatted for about an hour, hour and a half, two hours, something like that. Yeah, he even uh, offered his services to help anybody out uh, who is interviewing with the regionals. Uh, Yeah. And we we tried about that type of stuff for a little while and their Mm -hmm. experience with it. And it's interesting stuff. So that was really good. It's good to meet up with them. All right. And I think that's it. Anything, Um, anything coming up? Yeah. Then this weekend. Yeah. So I heard you mentioning we'll, uh, we'll meet up tomorrow for hops Mm -hmm. in the hangar in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. 
And also tomorrow, well, actually, I gotta, I'm flying to Atlanta tonight. So, uh, but I got plenty of time still. We're all good. Okay. Um, so I'll head out there tonight, uh, hops in the hangars tomorrow night. But in, during the day tomorrow is the U.S. Um, Olympic trials for the marathon. So there's going to be a big race in downtown Atlanta. Well, the Olympics, I thought they called off the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> they actually might. <laughs> they, they might. But yeah. we're still run Hopefully the not. Tomorrow. I think they have like a so, two month period yeah, of time to yeah, analyze yeah. what's going as of, on. As of right now, it is still on and yeah. they are still running the Olympic trials for all these various different events. So for the marathon, um, it will be uh, uh, tomorrow in Atlanta. And I was trying to figure out why that was on the screen. Yeah, me too. I'm, okay. <laughs> I guess that's important to somebody. There you go. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to watch that. Um, actually, uh, one of the the, ra- the racing team that I'm on, the running group that I'm with my coach, his our other coach, she's in the race tomorrow. She qualified for the Olympic trials. So that'll be fun to see. Wow. Uh, there'll be lots of runner friends of mine in town tomorrow. So I'll probably be running around, not racing tomorrow, but just catching up with people and doing all that kind of stuff. And then on Sunday, um, for those of us who are not fast enough to qualify for the Olympic trials, there is the Atlanta, I think it's the Publix marathon and half marathon. And I'm doing the half marathon part of that. So with, Very nice. uh, with my aunt. Yeah. I was That'll just thinking, fun. I was listening to the news and they were talking about all the stuff that's going in addition to all the things you just mentioned happening in downtown Atlanta, there's some other things happening as well. I forgot how, oh. like some concerts and basketball games and, all kinds of stuff. I'm thinking, well, it's going to be fun tomorrow night when I'm driving from Roswell down to the uh, Atlanta International Airport. And now, lots of traffic. Do, you have, do you have back roads to take somehow? Uh, really not uh, a lot of options and and for that. But I'll take a look at using one of my navigation programs and see what where the traffic's best. But I would take Marta, but Marta doesn't dump us off at the um, proper mm. place. No, uh, it really so. doesn't. Yeah. You could get an Uber from there, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's a possibility if it's really bad. Anyway, or nobody surely. cares about that. No. Not really. Um, yeah. Well, great. Good to uh good to see you, Steph, and, and it'll be very nice to see you tomorrow night. Yeah, indeed. Uh anything else? I was trying to think if there's anything else. I okay. think that's most of it. Yeah, uh, if you think of it, uh anything else, uh, just let us know. I th- we did um have a couple of items in the news that we saved just for you. I see that. Yeah. Excellent. So shall we move on with that and then get uh, continue with the feedback after that? Sure. Okay. Um, the first item is, and uh, Radio Roger mentioned it in his little teaser at the beginning of the show. Uh, this uh, from uh, Texas Charlie, he sent in this news item. And uh, the... So a U.S. businessman has tested out his wearable plastic tent on an airplane in an attempt to avoid coronavirus. His name is Rick Peskovitz. He's the CEO of Stadium Pod, which produces plastic tents worn over the torso by sports spectators wishing to avoid the rain. Uh, the Cincinnati man tested a second use for his pods by wearing one on an airplane in light of the coronavirus outbreak, which has killed 638 people to date. And that is not actually the, and now it's, I think, uh, getting closer to 3000, 2800 some odd. I think the last time I looked anyway, Peskovitz's brother, David told blog, uh, blog boing boing that a flight attendant happily took his brother's photo after he wore one of his blue tents on a plane as travelers 
are taking unusual steps to protect themselves from the coronavirus, my brother thought to see how this stadium pod would work on an airplane. Uh, so he says the man that had sat next to him didn't even bat an eye. <laughs> He'd probably seen a lot of strange things. Apparently, he uh, pitched this weatherproof pod on Shark Tank uh, USA in 2017. What do you think, uh, Steph? Any chance that this is going to have any effect whatsoever in preventing no. the transmission of a virus? Well, so here's the thing about this virus, right? Like, they, there's no more of what you hear are people running out and buying all these face masks to wear. Um, at least as far as uh, guidance from the CDC here in the United States, that's not something that needs to be done if you are a healthy individual and you're not caring for someone one-on-one who has coronavirus. Um, and even if you are, then you need a different type of mask, which is an N95 um, and one other type, which I forget off the top of my head. Um so please, people, stop running out and buying these surgical masks. It's completely unnecessary. Just looks um, like a bunch of doctors walking around everywhere. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, apparently in some places, it's actually put a, a shortage on uh, uh, some of those masks where people who actually do need them for Ugh. work purposes can't get them. <laughs> Humans. Yes. Come on, people. Oh, um, yeah. $10 masks now cost you oh, yeah. Price, so, price gouging uh, on the masks. Oh, yeah. Lots of that. So this, as far as this tent goes, you know, there's this whole idea of um, uh, what do they refer to it as? But basically, you know, the whole reason why people are being anytime you're sick or you're around sick people, you want to stay home. You don't want to have a lot of interaction with people. You want to distance yourself a little bit for any of these um, types of viruses where you can spread um, via um, cough, sneeze, anything where you're going to be in close contact with another another human. Um so technically, he's kind of distancing himself in this way. I just don't know that there's been any formal testing on his particular device that would prevent the transmission of some of those droplets through the little zippers that he has and other things. Mm-hmm. So it may not be as effective as he thinks it's being there. And it's probably completely unnecessary. Well, it got him in the news, right? It did. And, you know, it's probably um, good for business for him. Mm-hmm. I would say <laughs> so. Well, the sales of the plastic tent have... They're designed to stop rain, right. so uh, rain droplets are a bit bigger than they're viral a lot droplets. bigger than than vir- yeah, what? viral droplets. No way. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm not convinced this is anything anything useful. Yeah, I think a, uh, a a table tennis paddle is what you really need to bat the viruses away. Ah, mm. so you can actually see the vi- the drops of virus. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, ah, okay. They're little yellow things. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, in, in before long, we'll be having them all landing on our car, you know, this mm-hmm. spring. They'll be just covered with pollen. Oh, it's pollen. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but there might be viruses. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Pollen virus. Hey. Uh, um, you know what? I think this is um, uh, certainly this is a good time to say, you know, Practice good uh, hygiene practices are always important, even more so now. So, wash your hands. If you're going to cough or sneeze, make sure that you're not coughing or sneezing directly into the face of someone across from you or next to you. You know, use your the sleeve or your uh, your elbow, things like that, a napkin or a tissue if you've got it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've got this this uh, antivirus uh, device in front of my uh, <laughs> microphone here, so that I don't infect you guys. Oh, mm-hmm. thank you. That's very. Yeah, I, I have. I appreciate same, that. I mean, all all of us are doing the same thing. Thank you yeah. for your example. Will not come through the microphone through my earbuds. Okay. <laughs> That's the one. Yeah. You really don't want those viruses in your ears. My ear is bleeding, actually. So maybe <laughs> one of those little droplets got through somehow. 
Hey, so yeah. uh, Texas Charlie, thank you for uh, sending us that piece of uh, great news. <laughs> uh, oh, he sent us another one. Uh, now this is this is an interesting one here, and. Uh, mm. Well, let's see. We'll, we'll get a doctor's opinion about this. Uh, an American Airlines worker is fighting for his job back. He says he switched to the popular keto diet and that it ended up costing him his job. And he says, I don't want to be punished or and take consequences for something that I didn't do. That's like admitting to a crime or going to jail, even though I didn't do it, said Andrew Riley. He's now in the fight of his life as he takes on the Department of Transportation and American Airlines to get his job back. Uh, let's see. Once they forward it to the Department of Transportation, you're basically banned from being a flight attendant. So he's been a flight attendant with American since 2012 until he was fired last year. He says it's because he blew a .05 on a breathalyzer. He said, I wasn't drinking. I wasn't doing anything just because I changed my diet, he said. Uh, he believes that he blew a false positive because of the keto diet, K-E-T-O, uh, or is it keto? Am I mispronouncing keto. that? Keto? Okay. No, you're correct. It's keto. Uh, Dr. Ryan Lowry with ketogenics.com says the diet change can impact the way your body breaks down food, causing incorrect test results with acetone, and it will get released as isopropyl alcohol, and some de- devices aren't able to differentiate between isopropyl and ethanol he said uh he now a little bit of more background information this flight attendant that's fighting for his life mm-hmm. uh failed a first failed a breath test in 2013 that time though had nothing to do, do with the keto diet i don't even think there was a keto diet back in 2013 oh sure yeah actually oh, and i oh. yeah oh yeah i mean it's just a it's just a uh, very uh, it's high fat, low carb. So okay. there's been oh, various okay. uh, varieties. So like of uh, Atkins or whatever, yeah, very exactly. similar. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, that time had nothing to do, or he didn't claim it had anything to do with the diet. It was it was alcohol, and uh, so I guess he went through the program at American and was able to get his job back. And this time, it looks like American goes, uh, no, sorry. What do you think, Steph? You know, there's been, there's definitely been advances in these devices that are being used usually, especially in, um, um, professional environments for doing, uh, random spot checks and breathalyzers and, and for folks being pulled over under suspicion of driving under the influence. Um, there are devices that can tell the difference between the acetone or between isopropyl, um, alcohol and, um, ethanol, ethanol. Thank you. Um, However, uh, if they don't have one of those devices, then it will be a false positive. And there's actually other reasons why you can get false positives on those as well. Um, you know, I think he, unfortunately, this is something where you really, the burden on, of proof is going to be on him to, to, to do what he can to show that that's, that was a false positive. I mean, perhaps having him continue with his diet, be monitored, retesting to see if it's truly, um, a false positive testing with that same machine. Um, I'm not sure entirely, but I would think there'd be ways to to try and prove that theory if that's what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately for this particular flight attendant, because of that past history, um, I can see why their suspicions are, are yeah. much higher. And there might also be other information that is not mm-hmm. available to us uh, that, you know, helped with that decision. Sure. Sure. Um, but I think I would think most sophisticated, um, breathalyzer machines and testing these days could hopefully differentiate the difference. Yeah. And you would think that, 
you know, a big airline like American would have that. I, you know, modern, you would think, you know, yeah. you would think, but sometimes you'd be surprised by these things. So. I don't know. They have trouble. But I with think that'd be easy enough to prove if you would have someone, you know, if you would be willing to be monitored for a while while he was on his diet and with someone making sure he's not consuming any alcohol and then mm-hmm. retest and see if it still comes back positive with that same device yeah. and hopefully not positive with another device that's maybe more sensitive. Yeah, the question I would ask, or if I was about to be tested and I was would be concerned, I'd say, no, I don't want to test on this device. I want a blood test. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's and, the way to yeah. be absolutely certain. Yep. And that should be well within your right if you want to do that. And that would, um, that the isopropyl ethanol question wouldn't have any bearing whatsoever on a blood Not test. Not on your blood alcohol yeah. content, no. Okay. Hmm, I wonder why he didn't ask for that. That's interesting. Ah, good question. Mm. Mm. Well, yeah. Again, could be some other extenuating circumstances that we're not aware of. So, I mean, uh, have there been any case cases of a false positive because of uh, uh, this kind of a diet that yes. you know of? Oh, yep. okay. And actually, I was just reading through because uh, Jeff was mentioning the year. I was just reading through an abstract of an article from. Uh, 2007, which was talking about false positive breath alcohol tests after a ketogenic diet. So, okay. okay. Which it was possible. And, back, and back then, because it was not as popular of a diet, even though it did exist, many more of those devices did not differentiate between ethanol and isopropyl alcohol. Hmm. Interesting. I know one of our captains was uh, breathalyzed on the aircraft. He'd gone through security uh, and uh, someone had smelled his breath. And uh, he had been on the Atkins diet, and uh, his breath smelt, you know, mm-hmm. uh, quite, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so this guy uh, reported him, and the police came on the aircraft and dragged him off and breathalyzed him. Uh, and of course, he 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 turned out to be uh, n- not affected. Uh, he you know, he proved his, the fact that he hadn't been drinking, uh, but he declined then to operate the flight as we're allowed to in the UK. Sure, I mean, if yeah. You know, if you've been accused of that, why take the chance if something were to happen? And, you know, so the picture in my head when you said they came on and they dragged him off the airplane, the the doctor by the hair, you know, like that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The the doctor that was. Yeah. uh, yeah. (laughs) I hope it wasn't like that. (laughs) No, I think it was probably a bit more gentle. Okay, good. Civilized. Like, uh, we're going to need you to come with us. Okay, fine. Sure. I wasn't a witness. I'm only going by uh, third party information. Thank you, Liz. Dr. Dow. Dow. D-A-O. Okay. Um, Steph, you've been on the yeah. Dreamliner? I have. One okay. of my favorite. What to- do you think about those um, electrically dimmable um, windows? So I really like them. Um, <laughs> that would be dimwit, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> You know, they're really, they're really neat technology. The, yeah. uh, it, you know, you just press on the little button and it becomes more dim and it can be bright as day outside. You don't have to deal with window shades and all that nonsense. And there's a gradient, so it's not always completely clear or completely um, opaque. Um, and it kind of gives you this nice, like, blue effect sometimes of the sky. So it makes for really good pictures. Mm-hmm. Um but I do usually like to have at least some light coming through the window, so I don't care for it very much when they can be centrally controlled and all completely blacked out ah, for the folks who want to sleep or watch movies. That could be a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, so much so that United Airlines has sent out a notice to its flight attendants regarding the airline's 787 Dreamliner aircraft windows. The staff have been reminded to not centrally lock the electronically dimmable windows, the EDWs. Ooh. Yeah. 
The Chicago-based carrier wants its passengers to be able to allow as much light as they want in as they want. Uh, so I guess they're calling these things uh, transition windows, and kind of like I guess the transition. I mean, passengers might stay awake and then they'll want to want things. They'll they want make... to be served and looked after. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some of us do want to be served and looked after. So <laughs> much better to have the windows all black and everyone goes to sleep. Yeah. So I, yeah, I mean, I don't think most people, you know, even if it's the middle of the day and most people are trying to watch movies and things are going to have the window completely right. bright if they're given the option. You know, it's nice to have some reference to what's going on outside, but you can make these windows relatively dim or relatively uh, have a relatively small um, quotient of light coming through and still be able to see outside. And it makes it very easy for other people to watch their movie screens or mm -hmm. their IFE or take a nap, you know, use a, use a eye mask people. Come on. Now what, um, one thing I do like about the system and, and locking the ability to lock them in a certain setting is for takeoff and landing. Yes. I would make sure that they were, you know, in the completely transparent okay. mode at that point. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that's probably what they do, but I don't know. I, I don't fly for you. I've seen them so locked sure. completely dark oh. during the middle of the day. Really? Okay. Maybe. Well, I mean, on a long flight where people are trying to sleep and watch movies, which mm -hmm. and you're trying to get people's body clocks to reset to different time zones, um, which makes a little bit of sense. But sometimes I want to look out the window. Well, apparently, apparently, maybe some people have been complaining mm -hmm. to United about the fact that they can't. I can't open my window. Yeah. I want to see outside, please. Or I can't yeah. turn it turn all the way black. Or if to... you're like uh, claustrophobic or maybe have uh, some flying anxiety. Sometimes being able to look out the window, especially Feeling with the claustrophobia. a little air sick if it's turbulent, yeah. that helps a lot. Yep. All right. Well, there you have it. That's the the rest of our news items. And we also, uh, we're still in the midst of our feedback, Steph. I see a lot here with my name on it because apparently yeah. the colorblindness thing was a big... Uh, yeah, it was. Really interesting topic for a lot of people, which so, I'm glad... Do we want to tackle those? I don't know where you guys were, number-wise. Well, I, I think one of the things that might be worth talking about um, is the audio feedback sent in by um, Captain Nigel. Yes. Uh, regarding the coronavirus, because it's uh, you know quite topical Everywhere. right yep. now. So why don't we do that first? And it also has a medically-oriented um, kind of you know twist, or not twist, but a... Uh, that deals with slant. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Um, so why don't we listen to the uh, Captain Nigel and uh, what he has to say about this whole thing. Now, he recorded this uh, a few days back. So some of the stats that he mentions in the audio recording are not up to date, but he did send mm -hmm. us um, uh, a well, follow on. Perhaps by the time people listen to this as well, those stats oh, will yeah. all be out of date again anyway. So That's uh, whatever stats he mentions, just go ahead and go to the WHO or CDC website and you can find out the up-to-date information. Right. Or uh, this nice um, link that I have that will be in the show notes from John, John Hopkins University that kind of puts in a graphical format. It's a pretty, pretty slick little uh, thing that they've come up with. Anyway, here we go. Here's Captain Nigel and take it away, sir. Hello, APG crew and community. I thought I'd uh, continue on from my widely acclaimed feedback last November, which concerned the protests affecting Hong Kong Airport. 
And therefore, I thought I'd follow up on how the virus is affecting Hong Kong. I'm going to loosely use the terms coronavirus, which is a squiggly bit that gets inside you, and COVID-19, which is the consequent disease. I'm also going to focus on aviation, and I'm going to leave the medical bit to Dr. Steph to discuss if she so chooses. As a bit of background, I was in Hong Kong in 2002-03 when SARS was going on, so I know a bit how people react to this firsthand. And uh, I'm going to also ask you all to buckle up, because there are lots of numbers to follow. Firstly, I'm going to talk about what the International Air Transport Association, IATA, says. They're the lot that represents 290 airlines. As we all know, lots of international airlines cancelled flights to the regions. It wasn't just to China, mainly at mainland China, but it also affected Hong Kong, Taiwan and Macau. The major US carriers stopped as Delta United and American, as did Air Canada, the Air France, KLM, Merger, Qantas and BA. In all, about 50, well, more than 50 airlines uh, cancelled their flights to mainland China. In the one month just gone, which is mid-January to mid-February, over 100,000 flights were cancelled. 100,000. Albeit 90% of them were Chinese domestic, but that's an awful lot of aeroplanes not flying. As you can imagine, fuel costs went down because there was less demand, and in fact, fuel costs decreased by 17%, which is generally good for the airlines that aren't being affected. IATA says that generally the Asia-Pacific region has one-third of the total global demand. They had forecasted that this year the Asia-Pacific region was going to increase by 4.8%. Now IATA are estimating it'll decrease by 8.2%. In other words, a total change of 13% less than previously forecasted. IATA is also forecasting a 4% decrease in worldwide traffic, which means that's an awful lot of money. And they are saying there will be 30 billion US dollars less in the coming year. That's the first decrease since the crash of 2008 and 9. When I say crash, I mean financial crash. Couple of assumptions. It assumes that there's going to be a SARS-like dip followed by a recovery six months later. And also it assumes that COVID-19 stays focused on China, not worldwide. Already the Air France KLM group have uh, estimated they're going to be 220 million US dollars out of pocket. And Qantas has reckoned they're going to be 100 million US dollars out of pocket. Don't know about Cathay. I'm a shareholder, but I can't imagine them making too much of a profit. If we now look at Hong Kong, I'm going to look at the airport first and then just tour the carriers here. Firstly, Hong Kong International Airport, check that cock. Uh, in the months that's uh, just gone, so I'm comparing January 2020 with January 2019, in other words, pre the protests in uh, 2019. Overall, the passenger numbers decreased by 12%. 
that means 22,000 passengers a day less. The flights decreased by 9%, that's 117 flights a day left. And cargo decreased by 10%, that's lots and lots of boxes. That's just the airport. If you now uh, look at Cathay Pacific Airways, for example, comparing uh, the same months, January versus January a year ago, passengers have gone down by 4%, cargo's gone down by 9%. That's big for an airline. So looking at the numbers, Cathay have now reduced their passenger capacity for the next couple of months by 40%. In other words, they've cancelled more than half their total number of flights. Imagine if your airline cancelled half its flights. To combat it, they're asking all the staff to take three weeks unpaid leave, which for the individual of the employees is about a 6% cut in pay. For Cathay, if you look at the coming six months combined with the previous six months of protests, they're going to have significantly reduced profits, if any. However, if you look at another of the airlines, which is called Hong Kong Airlines, and that's not to be confused with Air Hong Kong, Hong Kong Airways or Hong Kong Express. There are lots of little airlines here as well. Hong Kong Airlines has got 44 Airbuses. About half of them are 330s, and the rest are either 320s or 350s. So modern aeroplanes, big aeroplanes. Hong Kong Airlines is a subsidiary of the Hainan Airlines Group, which, of course, none of us have heard of, but it is, in fact, one of the most active investment companies in the world, and it acquires numerous assets under its name all over the world. I have to state Nigel Demery's one rule of finance, uh, (laughs) never take financial advice from a pilot. What I observe is that if you operate with huge debt, you've got no contingency fund. That's Hong Kong, uh, sorry, that's Hainan Airlines Group's problem. They didn't foresee the Sino-US trade war. They didn't foresee the Hong Kong protests, and they certainly didn't foresee COVID-19. Basically, they've run out of cash. Everything's up in the air. And the group is now being taken over, as we speak, by the Chinese government. And the government, once it's taken it over, is aiming to sell off all its aviation assets. So if anyone wants 44 Airbuses, apply to the Chinese government. What it means for the Hong Kong Airlines itself, it's got a staff of 3,500 people. 400 of them uh, have already been told they will be made redundant. They're mainly the flight crews. 170 of them were sacked last week. On one day, they came to work and they went home again straight away. And the rest of the company is either on unpaid leave or part-time work. For how long, we do not know. But it won't be long because soon they won't have any aeroplanes. In general then, I'm going to sum up with a few facts, then my humble opinion. And that's dated the 24th of February 2020 because the numbers are changing all the time. So far, COVID-19 has had about 80,000 cases, of which 2,600 are dead, and about 25,000 have recovered, and it's spread through 34 countries. I think it's four more countries today. If you just look at the dead and the recovered, because presumably the other people are still ongoing, 
that's about 10% of the people so far have died. That's similar to or slightly less than SARS in 2003. The difference is SARS was contained. In other words, it stopped within the year. They managed to keep it isolated to 29 countries, only 8,000 cases, already COVID-19's had 80,000, and SARS had 774 dead, already there 2,600 dead with COVID-19. The World Health Organization, or WHO, uh, says the mortality rate's about 2%. Personally, I can't work that number out, but that's what they say. Some people say, oh, well, it's just another virus, a bit like flu. So let's have a look at flu. In 2018-2019, over that winter, I'm guessing, there were 43 million cases of flu worldwide, of which 650,000 ended up in hospital. And of those 650,000, 61,200 died. So that number is about one and a half deaths per thousand people. So that's significantly less than the one or two or 10% that we were talking about with SARS and COVID-19. COVID-19 is worse than flu. And there's no vaccine yet. There is some form of vaccines available for flu. But so far, they haven't got one for COVID-19. Looking at some of the countries, Japan and Korea both have about 800 cases each. Japan's was mainly on one cruise ship, which probably acted a bit like an incubator, in my humble opinion. Italy today has now put 50,000 people into quarantine. I find it difficult to imagine the West locking down cities of the size of 10 million people, such as London. China did that. They locked up three or four cities, 10 million people, that's it, stay at home, don't go to work. And today, Austria is considering closing its border with Italy. So it's into Europe in a big way. Looking slightly further eastwards, Iran is struggling, definitely, It's reported 43 cases, of which 12 are dead. So that's a very high death rate for the number of reported cases, which makes you think that if 12 are dead, there are actually way, way, way more than 43 cases. Three new countries today have uh, come on the uh, affected lift, Afghanistan, Bahrain and Kuwait. All of them reckon that the people came from Iran. So far, who is saying that the incubation period is 14 days? In other words, uh, if you have it on day one, two weeks later, you'll be fit and healthy again or dead. However, some more recent studies are coming out and saying that it might be 24 or 27 days. So we're putting all these people into quarantine for 14 days, but actually two weeks later, they're still infectious. Other studies are saying that about two-thirds of the exported cases from China may have gone undetected. In other words, they only worked out that a third of the people that left China, they chased them up. They haven't detected the other two-thirds of the people. That number of two-thirds is very similar with other studies of undetected cases in other countries. So 
The latest study says that they reckon that two-thirds of the cases have been undetected globally so far. Globally. That means in a town like yours. And another study says that a symptomatic transmission is possible. In other words, you can have it. You don't know you've got it, but you're passing it on to everyone around you. Finally, my opinion, without wishing to be scaremongering or being pessimistic, the IATA and WHO reports are definitely not optimistic. We haven't had a recession for 10 years. Recessions tend to be cyclic. Recessions always affect the airline industry. That's us, us listeners at APG. Um, and so what I'm saying to you is I hope you have your seatbelt still buckled because there's possible turbulence ahead. This is Hong Kong Nigel signing out. Good luck to all the APG community. Thank you. Well, that was quite positive, huh? <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Nigel, for sending that in. And now and we're he going... covered the he covered the medical part of it quite nicely. So yeah, he did. I don't know what I don't know what else you want me to cover about it. Well, Nigel, but you're you an expert in epidemiology, right? Does it involve spines? Um, sometimes, yeah, maybe not so much. <laughs> well, I, uh, post death, I'm sure your spine plays a part, rigor mortis, and all uh, that. Mm. Mm. No, perhaps not. Yeah, anyway. as we said, you know, at the beginning, um, the numbers that he was quoting there um, actually have have uh, con- increased considerably. Actually, I have the the current ones. I just pulled okay. up the uh, actually. If you go to the WHO website, mm-hmm. um, they have this whole the WHO, yeah, the WHO, who website. <laughs> who, who is there an owl around? <laughs> uh, they have this this whole dashboard where you can look and it's kind of interactive and it tells you how many confirmed cases and it breaks it down by country and um, the date on which they were uh, uh, discovered or diagnosed. So uh, current confirmed cases, 83,694 China leading the way there was 78,959 of those followed by Korea. Then the cruise ship that was referenced, the diamond princess, which was uh, docked in Japan uh, Italy, 650 cases, um, and then going down down the list uh, gets significantly smaller with each. I actually have um, even bigger numbers on the uh, John Hopkins thing. Oh, really? This is yeah. like current from the WHO website as far as I'm seeing well, it. This so. one is as of 3.53 uh, p.m. PM? and two okay. seconds that might past. Even be, <laughs> that might even be a more recent update than what they've actually put on their website for the WHO. So go yeah, ahead. Yeah, that's why I like this one better because i mean it's like up to the second hmm. uh 84,119 totally confirmed and in italy 888 hmm. so yeah odd because the one from who says last update today 4 p.m huh. which is well right they're now. using different numbers then apparently. different numbers <laughs> <laughs> so well either way huh. we're we're you know within a certain yeah, yeah yeah okay sure. anyway. interesting um so what what do you think here? Is this going to be contained or? So I think the I think the <laughs> this is my personal um, not an epidemiologist, not an infectious disease doc. This is just me looking at it and applying some common sense to what's going on. Um, this cat is out of the bag for sure. Um, it's it's a global phenomenon at this point. Um, you know, in the United States, we've had that first case of community transmission where someone was diagnosed where they don't know who they came in contact with. Um, as Nigel mentioned, it uh, appears to be a virus that can be spread asymptomatically. So folks can be infected um, or be carrying the virus and uh, transmit it and not know that they have it and may 
there may be people out there who never develop any symptoms but can still be contagious. So um, I think there are probably a lot more people out there um, harboring and carrying this virus than will ever be known or known at this moment. And people are going to get sick all around the world from it. So like I said at the beginning of the, uh, well, what I got here, now is a good time to be practicing those good hygiene techniques. Wash your hands, cover your mouth, all that type of stuff. And I guess that the the positive thing about all of this is if you are infected, um, 98 out of 100 recover. Yeah. So it's a that 2% mortality rate that's being quoted. It varies a lot. So um, I read yesterday and don't know if this still 100% holds true because obviously these numbers change all the time. But for children kind of under the age of 10, there haven't been any confirmed fatalities from infection with the virus. Um, that number changes drastically if you are elderly, have other medical conditions already that make you more susceptible to illnesses, um, can be as high as 14% in some of those populations. So that 2% is kind of an average. Oh, good thing I'm not old. Oh, wait yeah. a minute. Interesting. I seem to remember that SARS used to hit sort of the middle age of population right. rather than either end. Yeah. This doesn't seem to be following the same trend. No, no, and just really. like the 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 flu that we normally have, the influenza virus that we have every year, usually it's the very young and the very, very, young old, and very old and the mm -hmm. you know, depressed or whatever uh, compromised um, immune system people. Immunocompromised. I don't know if that I'm with just the depressed people. Better, yeah. Be well, I'm, I'm depressed. Oh, thinking about it. Terrible day, and I've got the flu. <laughs> I, well, I tried to change that. I, I tried to correct I, myself. I knew where you were. I knew where you were going with that. Hey, a a weakened immune system yeah that's, you could even call yeah. it a depressed immune system but that kind of gives the wrong connotation yeah. well the big problem for a lot of airlines is because confidence uh, is such a big player in this and people will be putting off travel now uh, which means there are going to be a lot of empty airplanes uh, flying around i think unless you're going to sit around in your house and not talk to anyone or not not interact with anyone um I, you know, for, for most of these places, unless you're in one of these hot spots in Japan right now, or in Japan in uh, China, um, let's say go ahead and, and live your life for the most part. Yeah, but people don't think that way. Do I they? understand. I mean, no, within don't. the United States, there'll be a lot of flying, but internationally, I think there'll probably be much less. I mean, you don't really want to be like these people who were stuck in Tenerife and they've, they've all been mm -hmm. carted off and pushed in a, put in a hotel and told to sit there for two weeks now. Yeah, I, I'd say it's probably not a great time to go on a cruise. Yeah. Um, well, the the might... other thing that really concerned me about Nigel's um, audio uh, was the, the thing he was talking about, the, that the incubation period might be more than 14 days. and so Yeah, we actually don't know yet, to yeah. be honest, because this is a, a new virus for for humans and we don't have all that information. So it's yep. evolving and ongoing and hopefully we'll know that sooner rather than later, but right now we don't. So as you said, um, just practice good hygiene and yeah. hope for the best. Exactly. Right. And I'm sure we'll be talking about this subject on many, many more episodes as we go into the future. So, all right. Um, Let's see. We have to kind of pare down some of our lineup and the feedback, and I think we've made the decision to start with number eight. Yeah, I will say, because I kind of mentioned it or teased it earlier, that there were a lot of colorblindness um, feedback responses to what we talked mm -hmm. about before. Uh, we're probably going to push all that off to the next show. I'm going to take a look through all of those because there are so many and see if I can consolidate just a little bit and answer uh, multiple questions at the same time. 
Okay. Well, when we were, um, I guess it was on the last episode or maybe the one before, uh, we were talking about, um, yeah, it was the last episode, wasn't it? United uh, bought out the company and I think Phoenix uh, for flight training and kind of a uh, sort of an ab initio sort style um, tra- uh, flight training program that they're instituting. And I'd mentioned that I could not remember uh, if the, well, I knew that JetBlue some time ago had initiated one of these types of training programs and that we had some people um, on the show that are part of our community that were um, enrolled in it. And I just hadn't heard much about it in the last year or two. And this, uh, I think is pretty official. This is from Joseph, uh, Joseph Hall. He's an E-190 first officer based in Boston, and he is on the JetBlue Master Executive Council Central Air Safety, uh, JetBlue FOQA Committee Gatekeeper, uh, all part of the uh, Airline That's, Pilots Association. That sounds Association. serious. He's the gatekeeper? Yes. Yeah, gatekeeper. Right. Gatekeeper. Yeah, he, he can make your day or break your day. Across the streams. Yeah. Exactly. Are you the key master? <laughs> Who's the key master? Are you the gatekeeper? Okay. <laughs> Um, Thank you, Nick. <laughs> listening to your Sunday recording, the Gateway program you all discussed is very much alive. I don't work directly with our Gateway program. However, the company program does update the pilot group from time to time. So that was just confirmation that yes. Uh, and um, let's see. Um, does Greg's have anything to do with JetBlue? No, I think. But um, so we have confirmation that the, the JetBlue program is still out there and functioning. Um, and then I had mentioned also that Louisiana Steve was in the Lyft uh, ab initio program uh, by Republic Airlines. And he says, hey, Jeff, just heard the little shout out there on uh, episode 413. All is going well here at Lyft other than this Midwestern winter weather. My wife has already informed me I will be bidding for either uh, Houston Intercontinental or Miami when I graduate. She is not a cold weather person. <laughs> Things are moving along quite well here. I'm now working on my way through the required 1,500 now and, oh, the required 1,500 hours. Now I'm a CFI and should have a class date at Republic for the end of the year. Yay. That's awesome. The school is now quite full with over 330 students and 34 aircraft. And I think they use the the diamond um, aircraft. I haven't flown one of those in a very long time, but great little aircraft for training. Yeah, mostly DA-40s and I think some 42s yeah, the, the uh, because they do, do mm-hmm. some multi-engine. Yeah. Anyway, uh, hope to see you coming through Indy sometime. Yeah, absolutely, Louisiana Steve. It's been a while since I've done Indy, but uh, if I if I do head up that way, I'll certainly let you know. And uh, so glad to hear everything is going well for you. And then Greg, um, big ass Peterson. <laughs> he says, hey, crew, I'd <laughs> like to get like your thoughts on something. That's what altered the word order. No, oh, he, he did put that there, didn't he? No, I see, look, I see, look at I how see, he signed I just it. it. He's in the uh, he's <laughs> in the YouTube any... chat room right now too. Yeah. yeah, so you know, it's a little self-deprecation, I guess. Um, hey, crew, I'd like to get your thoughts on something. I listen to several aviation podcasts. Of course, APG is my favorite. He says, uh, and most of all of them have had stories recently about United's purchase of the flight training school and the pilot shortage. It seems to me one of the common issues I keep hearing is the high cost of pilot training. I was wondering if there was a way to make flight training much less expensive. Would there still be a pilot shortage? 
Most of the numbers I hear are 80,000 to 130,000 for flight training, and then the starting salary at the regionals is 22 to 25,000. Do you think the high training costs are being used as a weed out so that only folks that are really serious about a flying career are willing to invest that kind of money? I understand that just getting a private pilot certificate is in the seven dollars to $8,000 range. Maybe in the whole scheme of things, that's really not that much, but I think that that deters a lot of people that could be good pilots from even attempting to get into the business. Blue skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds keep up the good work on the show. And again, Greg Peterson uh, from the Big Ass Fan Company. And I think that figure about the regionals, I think that used to be true, but isn't the starting salary it, it, much higher now? It's definitely like higher, and there are sign-on bonuses yeah. contingent upon staying for a certain period of time type of thing. Um, yeah. but it's still disproportionate, you know, um, it's not that different from what mm-hmm. doctors go through with the cost of medical training and then coming out into a residency program where you get paid. So I understand this very, very well. Um, I, I don't think it's being used as a weed out. I think just legitimately flying is expensive. Um, and you have to f- somehow get that experience in order to be an employable airline pilot and get enough experience to get through all those ratings, um, which is a little bit unfortunate, but, um, uh, I, I think I missed, I think you talked about the, um, some of these ab initio programs more the last show. Um, mm-hmm. but I think we're going to see more and more of that because the, ultimately the airlines have to do something about this pilot shortage that's coming and is, you know, certainly showing some of its signs within the, the regional airlines already. Um, and they're going to have to do something to keep those pilots in the the pipeline, those up and coming pilots. And if you don't do something to control those costs, you won't have enough people filling those spots, and then you'll have um, a shortage, definitely. So I think it's a mm-hmm. I think it's a good thing. Um, I think they're going to have to recoup those costs, certainly. So there's going to be a lot of um, I think that's going to be written into contracts at some point, you know, where if you go through our program, then you stay with us and you pay back however many years, and you can do the flight training at a reduced cost. Um, mm-hmm. I think. Oh. <laughs> Oh, it's time to leave. I guess well, we're I guess done. It's the end of our show. <laughs> it's like, is there like you know a what? hook coming you know what that is? Like... I'll explain what that okay. is here in a second. Uh, can I keep talking? Uh, I, I, uh, hang on. Hang on. I, um, I used this. Uh, that's the audio editing program mm-hmm. that I used to do the show. Well, you started editing already? I, 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 no, I, yeah. I, that's how efficient I am. No, I, I used this program for, the, uh, for Roger's um, intro uh-huh. at the beginning. And I never went back in to, to hit see. stop. So this whole time, time it's just been playing, but there's nothing to play I until gotcha. the very end. That's the, but the people in the video, by the way, if you've never heard the audio only podcast, that is what you hear as a music bed as we're trying to wrap up the show. And uh, so that, that's what oh, that I've was. I've never heard that before. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. The video, the video yeah. Wait, wait a minute. minute. Yeah. Well, that, I actually believe I that. I, <laughs> I know. I'm just kidding. Okay. So before I was so, so rudely I'm sorry interrupted, that, that, uh, Greg, I'm yeah. sorry. Um, gosh, what was I saying? I, I think it gets, um, you know, going back to that weed out thing that you mentioned, um, I think people who are very highly motivated will figure out a way to pay for a lot of this on their own if they want to go that route. Um, myself, personally, I was able to get my private pilot certificate done while I was in residency. Um, granted, it was the later years of residency where I was not nearly as busy. And I did have uh, the good fortune to be able to moonlight on the side and make a little extra money. Um, I would do that on Saturdays. And then on Sundays, I would go and do all my flying. And um, I had a 
a wonderful CFI who understood that I was coming from a background of or a very academic background. So I, I was kind of given free reign within the Part 61 system to do a lot of my own self-study. So I wasn't being charged for a lot of that time. Um, you know, we would meet up occasionally and just do checks to make sure that I was on track with the knowledge where I should be and make sure that things were going okay for written exams and stuff like that. Um, but for people who are very self-motivated and can work in that kind of environment, you can bring down that cost, even for the private pilot, quite a bit more um, by maybe... $1,500, $2,000, I would say, if you're so motivated. And then and then apply yeah. that going forward through all the the additional ratings. You know, um, That works mm -hmm. a little bit easier in the Part 61 um, side of things. If you're Part 141, those costs are going to be much more fixed because obviously you'd be in a school environment where you're um, basically following their plan and program. But there's something out there for everyone. There really is. No matter what type of student you are, how you think you're going to work best in terms of, uh, you know, achieving those those milestones so that you can get through the ratings and, and get to where you want to be in terms of a career. But historically, there have been uh, cadet ships pilot training schemes which have covered all the cost of pilot training, even in the civilian world, uh, a long time ago now. And I don't think we'll ever get back to that stage, but I certainly think there's a good case to for the airlines to shoulder a much larger proportion of the training costs and to not to indenture, as uh, Greg, uh, who's in the <laughs> chat room, says, um, their employees uh, for too long. Uh, and to be fair, I know of a number of airlines who've had uh, contractual obligations on their pilots to uh, pay back training costs. And when the pilots have decided to leave before their time's up, they've uh, been unable in the courts to uh, recoup that money, um, whether they have just declined to prosecute or, or what, I'm not sure. But uh, I don't know of many cases where the pilots have actually been made to give back all the money. Hmm doesn't work the same way for doctors and at least in the united states uh they they got you <laughs> they're, they're you gonna see, get they're gonna get your their, their money from you they know you're honorable people that's just true. us pilots it's we're not definitely so, not no. we'll skive <laughs> out of anything we can <laughs> <laughs> all right well i'm glad we knocked out that subject and um again as steph mentioned we'll uh put the um the colorblindness uh, issue right up at the beginning of our feedback on uh, in red episode. and green. Yes, exactly. So that it's so we easy. Can also so we won't be able to see it. <laughs> There's at least seven uh, pieces of feedback here, and three of them at least are audios. So that's good. We'll keep all the audio stuff, and I'll see if we can yeah. combine topics a little bit. All right. But I do want to tackle that because it seems to be a very, um, there's a lot of interest in that topic. So let's make sure we do it justice. Absolutely. Yeah. We don't want to try to squeeze it in now at the, we only have a few nah, minutes remaining in today's right. show anyway. So, well, thank you for bearing with us, everybody on uh, today's show. A um, little, little disjointed, but um, I'm glad that uh, Steph, you were able to, to make it today. Yeah. Sorry. I know I was, it was going to be a, a kind of a variable start time for me there, but toughest thing about doing this program. I mean, people ask me about this and doing it with uh, several hosts. And I said, the hardest thing is trying to get us all corralled in one place at one time every week. Uh, so, and, and sometimes we have, in fact, we thought we were going to do a two part show this week, but then it turns out that we could work it in and into a, a one part show. It makes it easier for editing and such as well. So I appreciate, um, Nick and Steph, uh, you know, being 
flexible in that regard. And uh, thank you uh, for the folks who are with us live in our chat room. Thanks for uh, um, being with us on today's program and being flexible as well. And let's see. Yeah, some great feedback uh, from the chat room on this show. Mm-hmm, yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, are you sure you're looking at our show or are you looking at a different one? <laughs> oh, no, were you over in PTK's <laughs> chat room? Yeah, that, that was, well, that's well, the one. Neville, Neville Bounds is in the chat room. Did you guys do a show today? Well, they, must, they must already be finished with their show. They, they probably finished already. They started after ours and finished before ours. Oh, well. That's probably There true. you go. That's the APG for you right there, huh? So uh, anyway, um, if you're um, new to the show and you want to learn more about it, uh, a great resource is our website. And you can even put that website on your phone and make it a, you can appify your, your phone, uh, your, your, uh, our website on your phone. And uh, anyway, the address is airlinepilotguy.com and you should check it out. And uh, let's see, we're also on the Meets. Yeah, I'm back to take over that role because I heard that didn't go so great last week. Uh, yeah, wasn't that wasn't that a little amateur hour. I failed my check right. I thought it was pretty I mean, good, I, actually. How, no sarcasm. You've been listening to me do it for, you know, how many years now? Anyway. Uh, if you would like time. to follow us on the social meds, yeah. um, a good place to do that is on Twitter. We are at APG Crew, so feel free to hop over there and... Uh, leave us some uh, some messages. Um, our individual Twitter accounts are posted or pinned to the top of that page. And we're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Um, you'll find lots of members of the community uh, sharing information, news articles, information about meetups, other kinds of stuff on that page as well. Um, and I uh, do kind of sometimes sort of run the Instagram account also at APG crew. So uh, go follow us over there, and when there's interesting stuff that I come across, I will post it there. Because um, I don't think Jeff or Nick or Dana are doing anything on the on the IG. Instagram. Never heard. Yeah, that's I, fine. I, I put I'll some take care. pictures up. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, well, I usually just um, repost your stuff that you post to your personal page anyway, so that's fine. Ah, <laughs> well, how about that's that? What I'm doing yeah. wrong. And if you really want to get involved, you should check out Slack. Yes, you should. Here, let me see if I can um, pull up the. Uh, hidden microphone in the bathroom oh wait. hello hello um okay sounds like he might actually be out of the shower this week for a change uh why don't you come over here and uh without getting everything soaking wet please this time he does have a towel and uh go <laughs> ahead and, yes and go ahead and tell us about slack hello APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thank you very much. Uh, now you can head back and do whatever whatever you're doing over there. So. Gosh, did you wait till the show's over? Okay. Well, thank you, Hillel, for that. And uh, until next time, wishing you clear skies and limited visibility and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot.
good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline, not a guy I fly I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy 